Good morning and welcome to the other faces but more importantly welcome to a brand new day on planet earth yes the sun has finally risen Joe Biden is the new president of the United States of America and I'm very very tempted to treat you to three full minutes of me saying yay but I won't tempting but I won't instead I will just say congratulations and well done to everybody involved over there across the pond from here on the aisle it is a very important time for everybody it's finally something to smile about and yeah again well done I'm not gonna go on about it too much because I'm sure you've heard enough of that in the last few days well can you ever get enough but really it's just a much needed smile of a time isn't it we haven't got that much in 2020 let's milk this for what we can again congratulations well done out there you have just improved our planet immeasurably. I really can't get across just how much this matters. So, so huzzah and hooray and well done from the other faces. And uh, yeah, good name that guy's got. Let's look forward to this new era, shall we? I suppose I should go back to what I'm supposed to be talking about. Yes, this is the other faces. Yes, this is part five of Scraps and Scrolls. I am Sir Buckley, your resident top green person. I'll be guiding you through our chapters as always today. And I am speaking to you from a, well, today is a sunny England. Unfortunately, We've hit the wet patch. The dog's getting muddy every time she steps out the door. It's not quite as nice for me, but today is sunny, so the energy should seep through, hopefully. You might have noticed we weren't here last week because Aziz and the share were fighting off storms, but that's all done now. They're all okay. They put up their episode on YouTube yesterday, so here we are, Scraps and Scrolls, following as always. Thank you for being patient and waiting for us, and obviously you out there who are patrons, you didn't have to wait because I already had this episode locked and loaded, so you got it extra early last week. While we're talking on patrons, let me do my normal. I'm going to thank everybody. I'm going to thank Lord Commander Namian Darklin. I'm going to thank KM, Aegon the Six, and Archmaester June. He loved the lesser poxes. So I'm going to give a special shout out to you this week because while it's good times over there in America, over here in the UK, we're back in lockdown too, which is a, a good thing. I support that because it's well needed. Glad that's finally happening, but that doesn't mean it's not tough. Of course, it is very, very tough emotionally, mentally for everybody. Of course, cases are going up, deaths are going up, and people like Archmaster June are out there looking after us, protecting us, doing the real real hard work so my absolute salute and thanks goes to Archmaster June and so many of others in her profession as well thank you thank you a million times even if it's unfortunately not quite so strict as last time it still hurts hard for many of us I certainly already feel the effects I'm sure many of you out there do too but either way it's going to be the same general message of just like last time if your situation is getting you down please don't hesitate to reach out of course tweet or message or whatever you like i'm always here to have a chat about that about anything nerdy to take your mind off it last time this is happening we got some very nice messages from people saying that the other faces was a good way to distract and just make them feel a bit better hopefully we can fill that role again the way to do it is to go forward together i think and hopefully you will agree which I guess is kind of similar to what we did less last week on Discord. You might have seen, might have appeared in your feed. I set up an emergency Discord server to distract people from all the election chat when we didn't know it was going to end so well, when it was a bit stressful and all the counting was being done, etc, etc. And I want to say thank you to everybody who came and joined in that. Had all the non-election chat. We had a lot of good stuff on there. That was a lot of fun. It's going to be closed now. It served its purpose. I think it help distract people and help take their mind off it a little safe space for everybody but it's definitely something i'll look to again in the future do it on patreon something like that we'll sort that out later but again thank you thank you to everybody so i know it's very very tempting to just talk about all this political stuff and joe biden and all the smiley reasons but well we do have another part of dance dragons to get to so we should probably get on with that i suppose 
Only one more thing before we start talking about this episode today. Hopefully you'll remember last week we had the monster episode, the five chapter episode, yes, with many, many important things going on in there. And I'd like to highlight that that little competition we've been doing every week of guessing which chapter is going to get the most airtime. Well, congratulations to N.F who's taken the top spot with a guess of Danny 2. Yes, out of the five, Danny 2 was the longest. Just don't get to get involved with that if you would like to. But that was last week. Let's do this week now. We have four chapters for you once again, back to normal, and are no less important, I feel. Some very, very good chapters today. And like last week, we'll be starting with Daenerys. With Daenerys 3, where the outside comes creeping in, all these external factors are going to be coming a lot closer. Then we'll get John back. We missed him last week. It's John 4, where some big decisions for Stannis are coming up, and John definitely influences those. Again, like last week, Tyrion holds down the middle spot, and in his Tyrion 5 chapter, we get the kind of creepy, very odd for a Tyrion chapter atmosphere. Where, you know, what's going on in this river? But either way, Tyrion makes a very, very important announcement. And we'll finish off with, like last week yeah, again, Davos. Davos 3, we're in the Merman's Court. We're with Myra Mandley. We're back with the phrase, unfortunately. And, well, I think you know how important and cool that chapter is especially for reread purposes so let's delay no longer let me only say quickly once again thank you for being here thank you for all your supports and retweets and everything like that i can actually tell you very quickly before i forget that october was the most successful month that isle of faces has ever had for the fourth time this year we've beaten our own record this last month was the very best in terms of total downloads so thank you for all contributing to that anyway let's get to it shall we part five of a dance with dragons we will begin with daenerys three well, Danny has managed to hold it in for two chapters, but unfortunately, in Danny 3, all the problems that were previously at least kept within the walls of Marine are now going to expand out into the general area. The Miranese knot is what we sometimes call this great glut of Daenerys problems, but that's actually slightly misleading. It's a slaver's bay knot, in truth, as the cities that Danny previously dealt with return, and those that would be on her horizon should she choose to march again decide to be a bit proactive. It's true, we saw shades of this in Danny 1 during her council meetings, but now the problems really are going to be turning up on her doorstep and they're never really going to leave either. From here on out, Danny doesn't just have to deal with the Miranese themselves or the Sons of the Harpy, now is Astapor and Yunkai come again. Even long forgotten calf gets in on the deal, and we do now have to consider new geese and Volantis from time to time as well. They'll be peaceful, they'll be threatening, they'll be greedy, disrespectful, outright murderous, and they'll be ensnaring most of all. The bombardment that was already considerable in the first two chapters hits a new level from here on out as Danny tries so hard to do right by the people as she always does. Unfortunately, she'll find that these cities who find it morally acceptable to deal in human slavery slash misery also aren't the nicest of people to deal with in general. Who knew? So is it a coincidence that George times this also the enemies swarm in just as Danny has locked away two of her biggest tools for doing good and justice let alone protecting herself? I think not. This is the weakest that Daenerys has looked since Calf, so they all want to take advantage while they can. This is the first after effect of all that discussion we had last week in Daenerys 2. As we've said before, George is using Danny to really deal with the idea of consequences and reaction to her hero journey. It's not something we see in most similar novels. We've described her as gravitational as well, and this storyline will follow this path of cities reacting to their interactions with Daenerys Targaryen, or reacting because of what she's already done along the coast. It's interesting to explore the two different approaches that she took in Storm and how they produced similar results. Astapor got the flame, and look at the pit it's become now. But then Yunkai was spared for the most part, and look how much trouble that is going to bring Danny and her people. Yet again, there's no right answer, and it's going to keep testing Danny's philosophical and moral arguments that she keeps having in her own mind about the uses of power and how far they should be pushed. 
For now, she's trying to avoid that entirely, having given the dragons up, but rereaders unfortunately know how that will go. The true hostilities from these different parties will come later on. Danny Free is about not just the trying to prevent war in the first place, but having to do it with huge temptations slapped down in front of you. Yes, wouldn't you know it, it's time to compare Danny and John once again, as Danny is presented with a large portion of what she's always wanted in this chapter. All she has to do to get it is go back on her word and abandon a large group of people. Sound familiar? That's going to make it a tough, confusing read for both Danny and us as we watch the first of many attempted, and sometimes successful, manipulations of Daenerys, the one who could not be stopped for any reason back in Storm. I suppose it's just that much easier to stare someone down when A, you and all your defeated friends decide to gang up together, and B, there's no more dragons to stare right back at you. It's a big chapter, it's an effective chapter, let's dive right in. And it must be said, the beginning of Daenerys 3 is pretty damn different from most chapters in Dance, both in tone and content. Normally, our chapters have been beginning with a pretty solemn line, a pretty dark atmosphere. Remember the first one or two Scraps and Scrolls episodes for Dance, where seemingly every chapter has started off with someone dying or starving, with the cold rolling in or the night being pitch black. It all set the mood very, very easily. Danny Free goes against the grain somewhat as Daenerys is watching some new dancers perform for her and her guests, with torchlight shining off limbs and breasts and buttocks. Yes, definitely not the start we're used to. And as if that's not jarring enough, we have Danny noting the male dancers are all standing to attention, if you get my drift. So yes, we seem pretty far from cold woods or damp castles right about now. But just because it's initially jarring doesn't mean it doesn't make complete sense, however. Daenerys, bless her, puts in a valid effort of trying to be cool about this. She asks herself, are they meant to inflame me? while also claiming it's the wine that's making her face hot when the dance moves on to a whole new level or erotic display. Good try, but you're not fooling us, Danny. The chapter states that their arousal was arousing, that she's taking note of their impressive physiques, and that when the dancers actually begin to have sex, she immediately thinks of Jaren Harris, the man she's already admitted to wanting. Again, there's no shame in that at all. Of course this is what she's thinking. A large part of Danny's dance arc, although sometimes an under-discussed part, I feel, is her sexual awakening or her sexual growth. Perhaps people don't think of that often because it already seems so long ago since we saw Danny's first initial intimate experiences with Drogo. They were described explicitly and she even fell pregnant so it just seems like we've already covered that a long long time ago. But then we have to remember she was only a 13 year old girl at the time. Okay, she's only a couple of years older now, although that can mean all the difference to people of that age group. And some people do have their own awakenings earlier than others, but this is just a bigger part of Danny's personality in dance. Naturally, most of that comes through her interactions with Dario and her desire for him. Unfortunately, we also have to see the other end of the spectrum of what she believes to be her duty of his star. And there are many fans who will tell you the passage of her flying off of Drogon also has some sort of sexual element. All of that can be connected to here, where Danny is, quite naturally, enjoying the show and letting it direct her mind to the man she wants to be doing this with in Dario. As it happens, her thoughts on him this time round actually do stick to the political, at least on the surface. He and his Stormcrows are returning to the city from the Lazar, apparently triumphant in their mission. So it's a pretty good start to the chapter overall, and Danny doubles down on that by simply wanting Dario. Again, she doesn't explicitly link that to sex right here and now. She just wants him. She wants that good feeling of seeing him again, because the last two chapters have been pretty damn sucky, and she wants some good news. She wants some companionship. So Dario Naharis lives on in the back of her mind, both as a comfort and maybe even a helper of ruling, and also, perhaps subconsciously, someone linked to what these dancers are doing in front of her. Danny is also still very much self-aware though. Yes, their arousal is arousing, but as she says, she still finds it a bit comical, and we definitely see what she means as she looks around the room at the various men who basically have their tongues on the floor as they watch. That is why she asks if this is meant to inflame her and put her off base, 
because it probably has a really high success rate of doing exactly that when negotiating with someone, seeing as 99.9% of these negotiations are going to be taking place by men only. There is one exception to this rule though, one man who doesn't seem quite so bothered about the dancers, and one man we are definitely not expected to see here. Zoro Zoon Daxos returns, completely out of left field, all the way from our memories of Clash and Carf to present day Marine. He is the first of our heralds from the surrounding cities that are closing in during this chapter, and initially Daenerys presents him as a figure of hope. Sway him I must, however. He had come up from Carf upon the galleus Silken Cloud, with thirteen galleys sailing attendants, his fleet an answered prayer. Marine's trade had dwindled away to nothing since she had ended slavery, but Zaro had the power to restore it. Unfortunately, Consequences is the name of the game yet again. Daenerys abolished slavery in Marine, a wondrous, saintly act that is very, very clearly a force for good in the world. Unfortunately, economic models do not much care for good and evil, and if you remove so large a cornerstone of slavery in this part of the world, the whole thing might collapse. It leaves a pretty big hole, and it desperately needs filling. I'll say once more, these are the kind of considerations most authors don't think of or bother with, but George is a cut above. Everything is tied together, everything reacts. We've discussed it and seen hints of it already in this book and others, all of Essos is connected through the slave trade. It's not the only industry, but it's pretty fucking large. Danny reminds us that Marine, Yunkai and Astapor were the linchpins, as she calls them. They work in turn with the Dothraki, as we see here. They affect the three cities. The same can be said for pirates and corsairs that we've seen and will see again in the future. The whole thing is a system, and Danny has just removed those precious linchpins. It's good on her, we know that, but we also know it's having a knock-on effect already. This is more than enough cause for war for many, many people. You've taken away their entire system of society in, in many ways. But Danny is actually thinking of a slightly more micro-view at this very moment, purely of the city that she's trying to save and rule. Yes, it is good we got rid of slaves, but we still have to produce something. We still need money, but we have nothing to sell now. And there is some level of irony that she can't sell timber or plant anything because of the effect of dragons centuries before. So how do we go about that? Hence Zaro's presence here. Danny rounds it up for us. I will not trust you, but I need you. I need your 13. I need your ships. I need your trade. Ships will be immensely useful, but a trade agreement of calf, even more so. We saw how lavish and wealthy the place was when we were there before, so she can set up any kind of trade route with them, as if this is some big game of civilization, who will at least stop the bleeding and help out with a whole heap of problems. Zoro hasn't changed much since we saw him. He still speaks in a near sickly sweet kind of way, all kindness and compliments, even if we remember that was not always so back when her time in Calf ended. He is a hungry man, and yet different. When Danny is looking around at these lolling tongues watching this dance, Zoro is not one of them. He does not look that way at Danny either, despite her wearing the traditional caffeine gown and his early attempts to marry her. Whether this is supposed to hint at Zaro being gay, which is certainly what's implied in a moment, though you can never be sure he's just saying something to be agreeable, or maybe he's asexual or just not interested in Danny, the larger point is that he's in a much better position than she is bargaining wise. He is not going to be distracted by the dancers. He cannot be thrown by the type of gown he sees every day. He wants power or money or both. And despite putting a smile in front of it, he reminds her that he's the one with leverage. She's the one with need. I wept to hear them. It is said that your enemies have promised wealth and glory and a hundred virgin slave girls to any man who slays you. The sons of the harpy. How does he know that? Danny does her best to put up a strong front, casting down the sons of the harpy as a mere annoyance that's barely worth her trouble, rather than the truly costly problem we know it is. We also get the update that the Shavepate's men have taken up the duty we saw arranged in Daenerys 2 and that they've taken to wearing masks so their family won't be harmed. It at least until they're killed and unmasked, assumedly. So the total body count should be down. Either way, Danny names them cowards and nowhere near her level. Unfortunately, Zaro cuts through that with the truth. Their prestige or honour doesn't really matter here. 
It's what they achieve, and they've achieved a fair bit thus far. The political games between these two continue. Zaro masks a question about who Danny is trying to ally with or has allied with beneath talk of her Dothraki blood riders and where they've got to. Danny counters with her well-worn, I'm only a young girl and know little of such things line that she used so much in Storm, presumably to keep Zaro overconfident yet underestimating of her abilities. Maybe he'll slip up if so. Zaro does some further assessing by establishing that she now has Barriss and Salmi at her side, but Jor Mormont is gone. Zaro likely thinks to himself that this is a win. Jorah's strength and danger was a bit more obvious than Barry's, but that only proves Danny's point, doesn't it? This man is definitely capable of underestimation if he thinks so little of Barristan the Bold. With a bit of information gathered, Zaro switches back to the technique we've seen before. The overblown courtesies, as Danny calls them. The waterfall of wet language that you and I might say, and Zaro attempts to drown us all in hyperbole. Suddenly, Daenerys is back at the centre of his universe, apparently, and he's bemoaning the fact that she did not choose to marry him back in the day, and how everyone else in Calf is an idiot who didn't want her, and he definitely didn't have any part in that, no, 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 that was all them. He even turns on the waterworks when acknowledging he can hardly be counted as a suitor to her any longer now that she's a queen. Which is good for us, because we've already got way too many of those in this single book already. Danny knows the tear is fake, as she knew in Clash, but this time, she seems so much older than her years in how she reacts to it. This isn't a timid Danny walking on eggshells, this is a woman grown who finds herself on equal footing now. She's able to play the part of friend when she throws the chariot at him, when she openly discusses his sexuality, which she also tries to turn to his advantage as something they have in common, and in the way that she speaks to him, she really does seem so much more grown up here. Friendly Daenerys might act, but she still knows the score and herself. I was a beggar queen, and you were Zara of the Thirteen, Danny thought, and all you wanted were my dragons. The two have a bit more catching up time on all that has changed since they last saw each other, specifically the switch in Danny's mission. It's hard to recall now, but freeing slaves was far from her mind when she was in Calf, despite so much of that storyline having been set up in Game of Thrones. She was all about Westeros and the throne back then. She still is now, but only to a degree. Unsurprisingly, Zara defends the practice and production of slavery, taking the side that this method alone could produce true experts in respective fields, as with the Unsullied, or, he explains, like these dances at the beginning of the chapter. That certainly casts a bit of a shadow over that seemingly lighter opening. He goes on to defend the opinion that the world needs slaves and cannot operate without them. Unfortunately, that argument can turn a lot of heads when you've only ever existed in a world made possible by the enslavement of thousands, or millions more likely. He gives multiple examples, he speaks quite eloquently, and he finishes with this. For some men to be great, others must be enslaved. Hmm, okay, shake our head time, I think. Unfortunately, this is a mindset still applied in our modern world, even if it pertains more to wealthy versus poor, rather than owner versus slave, although plenty of that still exists as well. I do not wish to equate being poor to being a slave, because of course they are not the same thing at all, but you see this way of thinking dominate conversations on politics, on capitalism, and about how the world works. I see it in my country, and there's a strong chance you will see it in yours as well. The world only works if we have a few people at the top with all the money, and then millions and millions beneath them with hardly anything, is apparently the party line. It is very sad to see how entrenched it is, how cold and heartless, and ultimately incorrect, I might add, and it's a great hope that more and more people will begin to see through what has become the norm for so very long, and fight for a better redistribution of wealth and much better economic models on a larger scale. I know that's a fairly big tangent I'm just taking you down, but it's something that strikes at me hard, and I'm going to resist talking to you about further because I'll never get off the subject otherwise. Zara is indeed a gifted speaker, and Danny finds herself tongue-tied and unable to match him in that field, but she knows he is wrong. She knows you can dress it up this way and that way, you can make this argument or ten more, but when you come down to it, it is morally wrong. Slavery is not the same as rain, she insisted. I have been rained on, and I have been sold. It is not the same. 
Danny goes on to argue that no man wants to be owned, which is a logical enough statement, but at least semi-incorrect in her current situation. Zara gives an example here. We got shades of it in her conversation with the pit fighters in her last chapter, and I believe there are a few more examples that will pop up as we go through our arc of people wanting to be slaves or wanting to fill that same role that they did before. As Zara explains, the price of freedom for some people has provided a harsher life than before. For some, it has reduced them to doing tough, cruel things that they do not want to do in order to live, which some might argue is just another form of involved slavery. Now that is an incredibly simplistic view that I'm clearly not qualified to talk about in any way. This entire situation is almost inconceivable in its complexity of people having the right to choose, but the system being so rigged that that choice is also forced. The idea that certain people have had to be brought down in order for Danny's regime to bring everyone up. It's all just incredibly tough to wrap your mind around, and Danny really is on her back foot here. She has no answer, she says she feels like she's been slapped. She gets annoyed that she's being beaten, and snaps at Zara, but beneath it all she remembers two key facts. Two key facts she can never let go of. Firstly, that when you get right down to it, no matter how you spin it, slavery is wrong and secondly that Zoro, Zoe and Daxos cares about her as long as she is of use and not a second longer so at least she's getting in some good practice for dealing with Ilya and Mahatsis later on. Luckily it's actually Zoro who changes the subject likely believing he has won this round of moral arguments. His mistake comes in reminding her of their time in Calf when he eventually turned against her. Either way he likely believes he can now push his deal through and request some privacy leading them out onto the balcony with Sir Barry. Sir Barristan is sworn to keep my secrets Daenerys says. This line might turn out to be a big pile of nothing, but it sure seems like the type we could one day look back on and raise our eyebrows at. Hmm, foreshadowing, possibly. Out on the terrace, Danny also senses that maybe there's some small chance she can get what she wants out of the conversation as well and suggests the trade of salt and wine. Unfortunately, that's a no-go. They don't want any copper either. Zara suggests olives, but they've all been burned before she even arrived. So just to keep the analogy going, we're back to our sieve game and no one wants to trade our resources. We keep asking Genghis Khan or Harold Bluetooth. They're all saying something like thanks but no thanks no matter which button you press and it's getting damn annoying. This is all still playing into Zara's hand. That is not really doing a great job of masking her desperation so he's just the one thing that he and his associates will pay for, slaves. Marine is a free city of free men. A poor city that was once rich. A hungry city that was once fat. A bloody city that was once peaceful. His accusations stung. There was too much truth in them. You can almost see that one coming. It's as if Zara has read the first two chapters of Danny's arc and noted what she worries about the most. She was wondering so much in Danny 2 whether she's actually brought good to the world or just made it worse, and Zara is really hitting on all those buttons. Still, she keeps up the front. She's got a good political face. She keeps her confidence. Her bulking seems to be directed as much to herself as it is to him. I find Zara's response about not dealing with the Dothraki an interesting little paragraph. It makes a lot of sense logistically, but there's also this sense of calf which we've already examined as this fragile, thin, pale city, obsessed with looking good and keeping pristine, not wanting to see how the sausage gets made, if I may make so crude a comparison. Oh, we want all your slaves and the benefits they bring us, but we don't want to get involved with the capturing or transportation or training of them. No, no, thank you, you keep that, that seems a bit messy for us. Besides, it would represent a very bad investment on all parties' behalf if so many were to die getting along the Red Waste. Though Zaro is talking as if he went for this calf alone, I think the whole chapter gives off this sense of him being basically in the mouthpiece for most of Danny's enemies, seeing if they can turn this to a profitable situation before war breaks out. You get the sense that they've all gathered together, poked their noses over Marine's wall, and have now nudged Zaro forward because he's met their enemy before and might have an in with them. Danny is getting more frustrated, so Zaro decides he will now be frank and tells her straight she is not going to achieve what she wants. She is going to fail. She is going to leave Marine worse than when she found it. Basically, everything Danny has been worrying about. 
Before he even gives her a chance to respond, he opens up the chapter to the larger themes we spoke about by bringing up Astapor as an example of what she's doing to the world and why she needs to stop. You'll recall we've already had a little bit of Astapor talk in Danny 1 when Lord Gale, the envoy, begs for her help for King Cleon, who had turned the masters into slaves and vice versa. Well, it turns out things are not going well for him, as he and his unsullied, quote-unquote, have had to retreat the palace to set up this siege storyline that will get with Quentin later on. Danny admits she already knew and also knows that Yunkai is getting stronger with new cell swords and new legions from new geese. Yes, three news. Zoro widens the scope further as he begins listing these cell sword companies that will soon be on their way, including the Windblown that we last saw at the end of Quentin's first chapter. The Golden Company also get a mention as being part of her enemy lineup, even if we know the plan is that they'll actually be working with her. Well, we assume that's the plan. We're still to actually meet the Golden Company, and who's to say where their loyalties will actually lie? It's very interesting and ironic, however, to hear that Viserys once tried to engage the Golden Company and failed, considering what they're up to now. Zara has all the advantages in this battle, and Danny basically has nothing. It's a tennis match where she's just being beaten back and back and back, further and further, and we really get that sense on this next page. First, she claims she has sellswords too, but Zara pounces on the fact that she has two companies and will soon face ten times that number. That isn't enough though, he has to add on the twister that two of her outstanding hopes in Tolos and Mantaris, which we've never learnt that much about up to this point, but Mantaris at least might figure large in her future, have agreed to join the enemy. Oh dear, that's another race. To counter that, Danny can only serve up her new alliance with Lazar, and we don't need to be Zara to see the kind of pitifulness of this one. Yeah, that return isn't even making it over the net, unfortunately. And yet, still Daenerys does not give in or lose face. Instead, she issues threats to burn down Yunkai should they attack, as we all kind of want to see her do given what they are like in this book, but Zaro counters that as well, saying Marine will portray her as soon as she looks away. She is already outnumbered and soon to be surrounded. It is not good all round. The only small victory Danny can take is that her freedmen are at least being trained into soldiers by Grey Worm, and Barry will figure into this part later on as well, so perhaps there's some more overconfidence to be teased out of Zaro just yet. But let's keep up that charade for now and introduce another. Have you forgotten? I have dragons. Do you? The issues of Danny 2 have taken exactly no time at all to raise their heads. Everything comes back to dragons, of course it does. Talented and wonderful as Daenerys is, they are the great equaliser. They are the leverage that no one else in the world can possibly match and enough to even make people as confident as Zaro think twice. And they aren't here anymore. And Zaro seems to know it even worse. She'd obviously hoped this would be kept a secret for a while longer as it's bound to be as damaging to her cause as anything else but it's already out there, despite the brave face she puts on here. All she can do is remind him of Astapor and the damage they wrought there when they were still small. Imagine what they can do fully grown, pissed off, and maybe even under control. Well, don't worry Danny. that's how we spend most of our time imagining exactly that. Seizing on this lone upper hand she has, Danny takes the chance to try and move the conversation past this failed idea of trade. That's what she needed him for, so what other use can he be? Zoro claims it is because he has a gift. A gift that is everything she ever wanted. Smartly, Danny goes into this, thinking it's likely to be a trap. The gift you begged of me and calf. Ships. There are 13 galleys in the bay. Yours, if you will have them. I've brought you a fleet to carry you home to Westeros. A fleet. It was more than she could hope for, so of course it made her wary. As we mentioned earlier, it seemed like an age ago, but ships were long the lone target for Daenerys. Even during some parts of Storm, she was thinking about them and where she could get some more. The gift of 13, with sailors, and without being asked for a dragon in return this time is everything she once wanted, and still does now. But Danny is not so foolish to show that. She keeps her cards close to her chest and demands an inspection, looking for the inevitable snare that Zara has definitely set somewhere. She finds it when he all but demands that she takes the ships and uses them for passage back to Westeros immediately. He offers the honeycomb of one hand and shows the whip of the other, she thinks. Or else, basically, he seems to say. We've got to admit, it is some good strategy from Zara. 
He's made a very convincing argument about how she can't succeed, he's battered her down with it, and then supplied an easy out that just so happens to be the one thing that she wanted all along, at basically no cost. This is the idea of all heroes being tested at some point. There's always the opportunity to go back on what you've already done, to take the easy way out. You don't need examples from me, it comes up in basically every story we've ever seen. And of course, it is also very, very comparable to one Jon Snow, we'll come back to that later. We also have this quicker side of Pyot Pri and his warlocks being sent out to find Daenerys after she left Karth, and the extra threat of them coming back to exact their revenge. It doesn't work on Danny, and we readers know it won't be of importance until we come across the Forsaken preview chapter. But at the time, for first time readers, maybe it is a cause for concern. It was only in the last chapter that Quaife was telling Danny to remember the Undying after all, so perhaps this is what she meant, maybe that's what she was warning about. Zaro takes one more stab at closing the deal by offering his sexual services, but neither of them truly want that, so they leave it with Danny promising to at least expect the ships, and thinking this would be all the easier if she herself were a dragon. Very true. As soon as Zara is gone, she's already considering the logistics of that offer. She can't help it. Is 13 truly enough for her 8,000 unstudied, the cell swords, and anyone else who wants to come? And is this even a legit option anymore with these dragons? Are they too big? Are they too wild? Could she even persuade them to board anymore given she's just locked them up? Not for the first or the last time, she wishes that Drogon were back. But don't worry Danny, he will come. Eventually he will come. Someone else has been present this entire time, as he has been for countless major moments in the history of Targaryens, and Baratheons also. So let's get his take on the offer. Before Barristan can even get to that, Danny notes the difference between him and Jorah in respect to this revealing carving gown she's wearing. Barry is sweetly making sure he doesn't look at her breast, whereas Jorah was all but doing that Jason Sudeikis click thing that he does in Hall Pass, except even creepier. Here we can be truly jealous of the first timers. Remember when we could imagine that Jorah Mormont wasn't going to eventually turn up in this book and we were finally shot of him? Yes, better times. Even with all that, Danny still remembers that Jorah supposedly gave her good counsel and she really needs the same from Barry right now. At first, he toes the line. His dislike of Zaro is as instant and obvious as it is for his star. Is that simply because he's distrusting of these Miranese in general, or because he's seen a thousand political players over the years and knows the ones that are rubbish? But at the same time, these ships promise what he wants personally and what he wants for Daenerys as well. At the moment, they are both papering over the big questions like if they have enough, how the city and the freedmen have reacted to Danny's abandonment, and these terrible autumn storms we keep hearing about because the temptation of the dream is just too strong, and it ends up with Danny being the one who is the voice of caution. In the end, they end up on the same point they started on. Tomorrow, we'll bring inspection of the ships from Barristan and Grolio, and we'll see what's what. And again, there's the dream. Marine was never your city, her brother's voice seemed to whisper. Your cities are across the sea. Your seven kingdoms where your enemies await you. You were born to serve them blood and fire. Hmm. Viserys really is getting a lot of exposure here in these early chapters, isn't he? He's really showing up in dance here. Despite all the points Zaro made, Danny begins the next day actually feeling a bit more hopeful than usual. Dario is on his way, but way more important is this promise of Westeros and the idea of home, the one she's been searching for her entire life. The possibility is there, more tangible than ever. And even better, only four people are waiting to bother her at court. That must be a record, so this day really is starting well. It's a shame it doesn't last too long. Lord Gale is here again to beg for Astapor and King Cleon, as he was in Danny 1. Gale's begging is now much more urgent as Yunkai descends on the chaotic mess of Astapor, as Zara already told us. Danny correctly reminds him she did not put Cleon in this position. In fact, she tried to prevent it, she left a council. He was the one who killed that council that she left and flipped her stance on slavery on its head, so he can be the one to get himself out of his own mess. He can't just screw everything up and then expect her to bail him out of it. She's even nice enough to honour any decision made by her freedmen that want to go and defend their home, but apparently Lord Gale expected more. We are all dead then. You gave us death, not freedom. Gale leapt to his feet and spat in her face. That's a good summary of a lot that happens in this book. Danny frees people, liberates their cities, 
and then get spat on when the people mess up what she gave them. As we'd expect, Belwas does some damage to Gale, cracking his teeth on the marble floor. Good. He deserves much worse for doing this to Danny, being so disrespectful. Of course, what it really means is another enemy has just been added to the list, but Danny doesn't even let that deter her from her duty of hearing more people. Later on come the results of the ship inspection, for which Danny gathers her counsel, which looks a little different these days and definitely more numerous than what we've seen in the past. And guess what? It's good news. The ships are sound and good old Admiral Grolio is a happy chappy. Given what we know of his ending in this book, we'd best appreciate happy Grolio moments while we get them, because he is one of those people who, despite being on her side 100% of the time, Daenerys makes unhappy through no fault of her own, it's just the way things go, unfortunately. Anyway, once Grolio confirms the ships are worthy, and they'll have enough rowers whatever happens, a roadblock that Danny hadn't considered comes up straight away. The Miranese contingent of her council is not hyped up about her jumping ship, excuse the pun, at the moment that a bunch of armies are about to come down upon them and take out their anger on whoever supported her. Reznak is worried. Skahaz is promising further bloodshed to whoever comes whether Danny is here or not. Not for the first time in this chapter, Danny feels like she's been slapped in the face. The dream of Westeros is so encompassing and so thrilling after she's gone so long without any progress, she's never stopped to think that not everyone's going to share in her desire. So she suggests, well, just come with then. But nothing is so simple, is it? You cannot uproot an entire city like that, even if they did want to, and if they did have the means, but they have neither. That is brought up next, as the council discuss some people sailing and some riding the coast road, up until it becomes the demon road we've heard so much about from Ilio and others. And note that Ilio didn't include all these many difficulties we hear about here when first describing the plan to Tyrion. It would be a costly journey, and Reznak insists on pointing out that anyone left in Marine will suffer the most horrible of fates in her place. Barast encounters that that sounds like Astapor talk. Danny freed you and saved you, and she's then giving you the tools you now have to put to use and defend yourself so you can carve out a piece of the world. But then there's the counter, another counter, counter, until we finally get this. Enough! Danny slapped the table. No one will be left to die. You are all my people. Her dreams of home and love had blinded her. I will not abandon Marine to the fate of Astapor. It grieves me to say so, but Westeros must wait. The temptation was there, just the same as John. The idea of home, of finally getting what you want, what you feel you deserve, of everything, but having them to turn it down for the betterment of other people and for duty. Personally, I don't believe these Miranese deserve Danny but she does not want them to experience the horrors that Astapor has. Which makes it superb structuring by George that this question is being brought up at the same time as we're hearing about Astapor and Danny is made to question if she only brings negativity into the world. She doesn't want to only burn and destroy and leave cities in the dust. She wants growth and life and motherhood. So she puts aside her personal wants for now. Nothing has changed since the morning before, she figures. She didn't think she'd get to Westeros anytime soon, and she doesn't now. It will still be there, she figures. Of course, that only provides extra tension for us, given what Tyrion has just uncovered, with someone maybe taking her place. Mm, maybe there is a time limit, Daenerys, you don't know. And you know, that's ignoring the others as well. So the happy moment for Grolio was rather short, and same for Barry too, who actually gives a bit of a burst of emotion at that promising spark that has just been taken from him. But Danny is insistent, this is the best for the people. She meets again with Zaru, and receives the gift of a gigantic map of the ancient world, just as an extra nudge to guide her home and the hell away from here, seeing as Zara believes that he's won, and you can't really blame him. Danny makes her best offer of friendship and trade, perhaps quite naively, and, you know, would you mind if we also kept those ships, perhaps? Zaro is a little bit more direct than usual in his response. Zaro's glad smile died upon his lip. Note that Danny does not tell him that she doesn't want to go, she says she cannot go. There is still too much to protect here, but Zaro is past hearing. He says she will die screaming. He says he should have slain her in calf. Danny has always known this man could never be counted on as a friend, but the new confirmation of him definitely being an enemy is hard to take. But there's no way she will swallow being threatened in her own city. I was a guest beneath your roof and ate of your meat and mead, she said. 
in memory of all you did for me, I will forgive those words. Once. But never presume to threaten me again. Zaro's own Duxos does not threaten. He promises. Her sadness turned to fury. And I promise you that if you are not gone before the sun comes up, we will learn how well a lion's tears can quench dragonfire. Leave me, Zaro. Quickly. Boom. Mic drop. Nice one. Zaro leaves, but his gift remains, almost as a tease, so Danny can look across it and hope. One day, she says, and we really, really do hope she means it. The ship stayed too, but as definitive enemies, and the chapter ends on a note that's really been confirmed all the way through this chapter. Danny has an enemy in Karth, and war is coming to Marine, now both inside and out. This is the harder path, the one she doesn't want, the one that is still going to cost plenty of life and heartache, but she still believes it to be hers. This is after a chapter full of telling her all the difficulties coming her way, how few the avenues are to get out of it. So the turning down of an escape route and out means all that much more. It might be the damn opposite of what we want, but we absolutely must commend the effort and the total personal sacrifice from Daenerys. Recall that this is a new situation for her where everything is out of her hands. She's been in tough spots before, of course, but since she's gained the dragon, since they've grown a bit, since Astapor, since she started this part of her life, no, this is something new. Soon she'll be surrounded and very much outnumbered. This will be not just war, but war in multiple directions, and it's going to be very hard to deal with, but she has chosen that. She has chosen protection over herself. So we must, again, commend her. And war is very much the theme heading into our next chapter as well. So let's get now to John 4. Yes, John provides a major influence on the future of the North and on Stannis' campaign, particularly even while assuring himself that he's not taking part and has nothing to do with who rules the realm that was once his father's. Yeah, alright, John, sure. At the same time, we examine the new reality for the Night's Watch of all these thousands of people around and winter on the way and exactly how they, or more to point John, are going to handle it. Yet again, we see why John and Danny have been placed next to each other. As John delves down into the nitty-gritty details, as Daenerys has already had to do, and we watch him walk this narrow tightrope between the well-being of his city, or in his case a castle, an institution, versus this larger, ever-creeping war. Yes, that is again familiar, isn't it? John 4 continues the build-up we had so much of in last week's Theon and Davos chapters, as it's now blindingly clear that the War for the North is going to be a central root of this dance story. That wasn't immediately obvious in the first couple of chapters, but now we're really being hit over the head with it, and it's going to encompass a hell of a lot of people. Try as John might, there is absolutely no way to stay out of this one. And really, we all know he shouldn't try anyway. Not only does the honour and history of the Starks raise its head again in this chapter, but it's also becoming equally obvious that the North and the Wall will eventually need to work together to stop the oncoming enemy, and we can all take a hard guess that the Boltons aren't going to be the ones to do that duty. This will eventually be John's war, even if today we see a major step for the story of Stannis, Melisandre, and for Castle Black itself, but mainly I have to prop up this chapter as just a brilliant showcasing of Jon Snow's ability. I really, really want to hit that one hard. So let's get to it. Before that overall comes, those details that we love so very much, the actual bedrock of war and survival, comes in the form of logistics. Like with Fionn 1, we are back underground, in the dark, and with rats. But at least we're not eating them this time. Not yet, anyway. John has come down to the Castle Black stores via the Wormways, and with Dolores Ed, who has a hell of a chapter for one-liners here, by the way. I'd love to quote them all to you, but... Well, you know, you've read the chapter. Even the fact that the Wormways are being used so much early on is a signal of the change coming to Castle Black as winter sets in. A lot of this chapter is about the specific preparation for winter in more ways than the characters know. It's in the background of any Westerosi chapter, of course, but starvation will become an issue, as we often say, and thanks in part to decisions made today, Stannis and his forces will feel the true whip of winter when they are on their march later on. 
Once Ed and John meet with Burr Marsh and Wick Whittlestick, that's a good name, it's on to the storeroom so that they can do some counting and preparing. You'd think this would make a pretty hard pitch to the editors for a chapter, wouldn't you? So George, are we going to have John fight off some foe from atop the wall? Well, no, he's going to go and do some inventory. But then again, this is George, and one of his main selling points as an author is his ability to make us interested in events that might originally sound dull, and he certainly does so here. As they pass these separate rooms of food hidden behind huge doors, two issues stand out already to me. Firstly, that stealing or pilferage might become an issue at some point, which Byrne thinks it will when it starts to get colder. And bear in mind, that's still operating on their usual numbers. That would be a worry anyway, forgetting all these people that have just been added on. Which just adds onto this sense that John really needs to hold on to his grip of power as tight as possible, because extreme circumstances could cause it to slip, as we'll eventually see. But the other is this idea of the keys all looking the same to John and belonging to Wick. It'd be very so Night's Watchy for Wick to die or to be killed in the chaos of the end of the book and for the keys to go missing or for no one to know which is which or something of that nature. Confusion and hunger follow, of course. Both issues might point towards the period directly following John's supposed death and the carnage that could happen as a result. The last time a Lord Commander was killed, it was also by his own rowers and it was also our place in the grips of winter and with food stores hidden beneath the ground in Craster's Keep. So I wonder if winds will open with a similar scene. I keep picturing little mini-sieges in certain areas of the castle being cut off or sealed up like we saw in the show. If that happens, these storerooms are going to be an area of high importance. Someone's going to want to get there quick. Or, conversely, they could just end up being raided in the first 10 minutes and all this prep is for nothing, hunger and hurt is to follow again. John gives us a long description of the various foods in the various rooms, as George is sometimes wont to do. And to our unknowing ears, it sounds like quite a lot, to me anyway. I am particularly interested in these wheels of cheese it takes two men to move. I would very much like to make their acquaintance. And then we find there's even more actually inside the wall itself, as we enter the world's biggest freezer. Although John also has an ominous note that it feels colder than it should. That's never good, is it? But it turns out we're as ignorant as John himself when Burn Marsh announces the grim news that it is not enough. John had just been thinking that all the meat in the world surrounded them. You know nothing, Jon Snow, he thought. It's a good reminder that even though John has superb intentions and has still performed brilliantly in terms of politics and his dealings with Stannis so far, he is still very much learning on the job and there's heaps of things he has no knowledge of or the complete wrong idea about. Then again, this job is supposed to be for life, so you're supposed to have time for learning, aren't you? Burn Marsh tells us it's not the amount of food that's the problem, it's the amount of mouths that have now appeared in Stannis and the Wildlings. They're actually pretty well prepared beforehand, ready for perhaps four years of winter. So I guess we should say well done to Gior for getting that ready, he and Donald Noy. I don't like giving too many compliments to Gior Mormont, but credit where it's due. This also relates to John's previous argument about not shutting off the gate, as you assume at least some of the meat they have stored here comes from above the wall, or maybe even the majority. And it's also mentioned that the laws have been generous. So perhaps shame on us for claiming that North in general has a certain apathy towards the Night Watch in recent years. But then again, I would guess the majority of this generosity came back when Eddard Stark was in charge and everything was in the status quo, no one's worrying about war, etc. Bowen Marsh is pretty dire in his assessment. I'd love to theorise he's just embellishing to make his point about the wildlings not being welcome, but unfortunately, I doubt that's the case. With wildlings, queensmen, kingsmen, and people coming in from Molestown as well, those four years are now a dream away. Bowen thinks they'll be down to scraps in just a year's time. That's a pretty big drop, and they need to go on winter rations right now. Consider what a death knell this sounds like. Winters go on for years and years in this world. This coming one is supposed to be the longest in ages, even without all the extracurriculars of the others, etc. And you're going to be going on basics right now. Basically, they're saying this is all you're getting for the <laughs> years of your life. That is not good. Add in disease as well, the possibility of that, and the lack of ability to defend against it or grow anything new. So there's more similarities between this and Danny's chapter. And it leaves John in an awkward position. 
Considered just two chapters ago, we were down in still thriving White Harbour where food was still available and everyone was fairly upbeat aside from the possibility of war. Technically, we're only at the other end of a kingdom and yet food is already incredibly scarce to begin with. So it's up to John to make what will clearly be an unpopular order to cut rations by a quarter. That's definitely not going to win him any friends and if you remember, he just sent his old ones away anyway. That kind of resentment can linger even if it seems small to us overall. Consider how few benefits there are on the wall. With all due respect to Hob, I doubt anyone is calling the food a benefit, but it's a hell of a lot better than three quarter rations before winter has even truly arrived, and again, this is going to go on for years. John thinks, the men will love that. If we must, we'll cut each man's portion by a quarter. If my brothers are complaining of me now, what will they say when they're eating snow and acorn paste? So that tension of the possibility of mutiny is brought up again, and with it, it's this idea of real factions forming within the watch and within the castle. This decision isn't going to help the latter, as the brothers are naturally going to blame Stannis' men and the wildlings for their growing hunger. They've been here for years, they've put in the hard work, they've sacrificed their lives, they've even gathered in the food, and now these strangers and former enemies are going to get a share despite basically doing nothing to earn it. That's a very, very quick way to build up resentment. And unfortunately, because of trying to present a united front in his last chapter, a lot of the blame will go to John as well. Okay, fine, but Stannis doesn't have to make the call, even though he's at least half responsible. He brought the wildlings through, he's turned up with all these people. The wildlings can't really take responsibility, it's not them making the decision, so they can't get that portion of the blame, even though it's them who will be fed. It's John who has to make the unpopular choice, it's him who has to be the face of it, he'll have to take it on the chin and not say a word in complaint. On top of that, he's also got no real solution yet. He'll think of one later, we even get a hint of it here, although that has its own unpopularity, but for now he's trying to project that he might know what he's doing and that his rule is secure, even if that's starting to get a bit dodgy. Basically, Bone is trying to make his I told you so point that letting the wildlings through is going to kill them even if it's not with swords and axes, while Ed is doing a superb job of keeping the atmosphere light. Meanwhile, John is back to thinking on this idea of hunting above the wall that we just discussed, and how that is also fracturing the men of the Night's Watch, given Bowen's call to seal the gates and the rangers, and John's opinion, that needs to be left open. The tension is creeping through and John is well aware of it, but for now, it's with brave face and confidence time, just like Danny with Zaru. The bottom line is constant whatever. They must eat, but they must keep Stannis happy, and they must feed the wildlings. They must find a way. And at least one of those issues will be resolved thanks to this chapter. Back up on ground level, John finds Devon Seaworth waiting for him with an order that Jon Snow is to go and see Stannis. Unfortunately for poor Devon, Ghost is inspecting him a bit, which is probably pretty intimidating, and Jon has to call the direwolf away. We could maybe guess that Ghost is detecting some future importance or even danger from Devon, which is possible given his connection to Melisandre, or maybe he can even detect his relation to someone of destiny in his father Davos. But I think he's probably just having a good old sniff, and we shouldn't disallow him that. There's some light-hearted disagreement about the use of language directed at Jon from Stannis here, Devon says it's a command, Ed says it should be a request, John calls it a mere squabble, but it's evidence of a larger problem. There's just too many people in Castle Black right now, and these contingents are starting to get on each other's nerves. The food announcement is only going to make that worse. They need to move on ASAP. Good job that this is what this chapter is all about. John agrees to meet with Stannis anyway, especially because he's curious about these wrong-way rangers who have returned. Inside the King's Tower, John finds Stannis, his captains, those wrong-way rangers, Sigourn, and the man he still believes is Rattleshirt sat mocking him for his part in quote-unquote Mance Raider's death. It's good timing by George to shove this in our faces so quickly after the fake burning, and to make him eye John even worse than usual, just so we can look back later with even more interest. Obviously, John has no idea this is actually Mance in front of him, and Mance seems to relish in that fact a bit, pointing out that the ruby hides him, perhaps being a bit perturbed that John thought he was killing Mance or had a part in that burning at all. Rattleshirt remains the topic of conversation when Stannis announces that he is being given to Jon as one of these men he was promised. Now that Janos Slint is dead, there's probably not anyone that Jon wants less, and he contends he'd be useless anyway because he's such an arrogant fool that cares only for himself. 
Both Mance and Melisandre review this. Mance says he's done with those old fools, which is odd to hear him say and I'm guessing it's just part of the act, while Melisandre says, So long as he wears the gem, he is bound to me. Blood and soul, the Red Priestess said. This man will serve you faithfully. The flames do not lie, Lord Snow. Perhaps not, John thought, but you do. See, John does know things. He's a smart guy. This seems like a dodgy agreement all round, as long as he wears the gem. Well, how is John to know he can't simply take it off? He doesn't know that. And he's bound to Melisandre, not John. So what if they should have a difference of opinion? And isn't she going to be leaving with Stannis soon? Well, we'll come back to that later, but that's what John assumes. Mance gives another little hint of true identity when he offers to sing pretty songs for John. I'm fairly sure Rowshirt doesn't have a singing voice, as well as his extreme aversion to having to wear a cloak of the Night's Watch, which you obviously know to be a big part of Mance's backstory. But John decides to leave it there, and so does George. That particular thread will be picked up in a later chapter. For now, the focus is back to Stannis as he asks John for information on the Northerners and this brewing war. The Night's Watch takes no part, John thought, but another voice within him said, Words are not swords. Sam or Eamon might disagree as we remember their conversations from John's earlier chapters, but this is John making a concession to something he actually wants for a change. Danny allows herself a bit of Dario, John allows himself a bit of interaction in the war. Besides, so far, he's doing nothing except giving a bit of information. And technically, what is he supposed to do in this situation anyway? Just say no? That's not going to go down well. Either way, it's yet more evidence of how valuable John is to Stannis and to, well, everyone there. The opening subject is Moore's Umber, or Crow Food, who John gives the lowdown on. The well memory might recall we've met Moors back at Winterfell when Bran held his feast and he didn't come off as too great a guy. He basically just wanted to marry Donella Hornwood to get her lands and definitely wasn't a fan of Wyman Manderley. But he'll play some key parts in this book later on and will actually seem to play the role of good guy if you want to call him that. We shall reach him in good time of course but there's definitely parts of his story that I look forward to covering. For now, Stannis wants to know if the man can be trusted. Jon smartly tells him he can if his oaths are sworn in front of a heart tree. Again, proving his worth because no one else in the room is going to be able to tell him that, just John. This is met with derision by the Southerners, but we've already dealt with a little bit. There's Godry Farring and Clayton Suggs, complete morons and utter bullies that we like to forget exist, if only we could. John does just that by ignoring them and asking the more important question of whether Stannis has gained the Umbers, for that would obviously be a huge get for his campaign. Unfortunately, nothing in this war is ever going to be so straightforward. Even more so than the battles we've seen before, We'll have constant questions of who is serving who and who's a liar, etc, etc. I, for one, always forget whether it's the Karstarks who play Stannis false or the Umbers. I had to go and check right now. And luckily I was right, it is the Karstarks. As for the Umbers, Stannis only has half of them. The other half ride with the other Umber uncle, Hother, also known as Horsbane. We met him back at that same feast at Winterfell, where he was the one much more pushy about needing more men to defend against the wildlings and bring in the harvest. John gives his backstory as well including the oddity of an umber once being sent to be a maester in Old Town. That is definitely not a story we hear often of these types of families from this part of the world. We'll eventually find that Hofer is only begrudgingly joined with the Boltons because fan favourite, the Great John, is still a captive from the Red Wedding. Yes, we all remember that. First-timers will now also begin to tease out that he was one of the unnamed lords sat beside Ramsay at the Dreadfort in Fionn 1. His main part to play is likely to come in Winds, Mon and Dance, but we can paint the Umbers as a kind of reflection of the Karstarks, as Roos Bolton will later believe that Hofer will portray them as Arnoff is supposed to actually do to Stannis. You can see why there's sometimes confusion. Don't worry, I think we'll be repeating parts of that as we go. There's also much to discuss later on about how neither of the Umbers have a true force of fighting men and are just trying to do their best. We would probably do well to stick to our current chapter for now. Well, I will say this is kind of representative of several other stories from Fire and Blood, from later on in the Blackfire Rebellions and Duncan Egg Tales of 
Normally, it's a father putting two sons on opposite sides so that you can guarantee a win in any situation. Although, of course, you're also guaranteeing yourself a lot, but it's kind of just trying to spread out your chances, basically. Now, this one's a little bit different because because their father has passed away. They're doing it for themselves, but it's the same kind of thing of where we need to put our best foot forward, do the best thing for last turf and our lands and our people. Maybe we can get something out of this, and hopefully it's the one we want. But I guess if Stannis dies from frostbite in two days' time, then they're pretty well covered. They can just go over to the Boltons in total. So you can compare that to other points in history as well. When Jon asks if Stannis has gained other lords, Melisandre interrupts with a vision of a wooden town filled by particular northern banners, which Clayton Suggs names as Hornwood, Sirwin, Tallheart, Riswell, and Dustin. All gone over to the Boltons, like we learned in Davos's chapter last week. All traitors according to Suggs. Good name, Suggs. Jon's cooler head prevails, though. He looks into the reasons why these houses have gone to the Boltons. The Riswells and Dustins are married into them, so they have basically no choice from the beginning. For the rest, John agrees with what we claimed last week. The lords of these houses are dead and gone, a lot of their number in total as well. They are weak and rudderless, so it only makes sense that they go over to the enemy. And consider that John is a member of the family these houses would specifically be portraying. It wouldn't be a surprise to anyone if John cursed them out and got all angry about it, but he's far too smart for that. He knows the reasons. All of which leads John to recommend that Stannis accept Maul's Umber into his service. He's no lapdog, and Stannis clearly needs all the help he can get. Yes, there's the caveat that Umber will not fight Umber. Again, that's very smart of them to suggest so. To which John provides an easy solution. Okay, don't make them fight then. Problem solved. The Southerners disagree again, as they will with pretty much everything that John says in this meeting. They do not like him, I think it's clear. They want to go on with the much more used and much more stupid plan of what they believe to be a show of power. Waste your time riding all the way to Last Turf, lose a few men as you kill all theirs, and do yourself out of the few hundred that Moors was previously offering. John can't even deal with this guy. Honestly, who invited him to this meeting? The guy is a fucking idiot. One of the only Northern Norse to extend a hand is going to have it chopped off for the trouble. That's a superb way to ensure that no more hands come your way, when most have already pointed towards the Boltons anyway. This would seal Stannis' fate whenever they do get back from this outing. They are in the North now. This wouldn't intimidate anyone, only enrage them. So can you just imagine if Stannis didn't have Jon here to point out the inherent stupidity? His campaign would be over before Roos could even cross Moat Caelan. Godry Faring reveals more of his true nature when he suggests that uncles are hoping for the great John and his children to die so that they can inherit, which is a bit like the Karstark situation, so again, confusing. At which point, John gets a bit bored of ignoring and retorts, suggests that in the hearing of Moore's Umber, Sir Godry, and you will learn more of death than you might wish. I have slain a giant boy. Why should I fear some flea-ridden Northman who paints one on his shield? The giant was running away. Moore's won't be. Boomtown. Mic drop. Yeah, Danny gets one in, so does John. By this point, even men on Godry's own side are sick of his shouting, as Justin Massey, one of these wrong way rangers, tells him to pipe down, before Stannis finally gets involved and tells everyone to shut up. This is an important time, as he refocuses on Jon, and tells him it's time to ignite the true war of the North. Jon, smartly, thinks that that means Stannis wants something, because he normally does. At first, he thinks the Night's Watch is about to be drafted into this war, foreshadowing, cough, cough, foreshadowing, but instead, Stannis tells us he intends to march on the Dreadfort. The connections go off in our mind. Hey, we know the Dreadfort. We were just there with Fionn. Well, that is well suited because it's Fionn who Stannis unknowingly intends to imitate here. He is going to use what he believes is the element of surprise and attack a castle whose main force has gone elsewhere, just as Fionn once did with Winterfell. Stannis has learnt from both Moors and Arnulf Karstark, the other unnamed lord in Fionn's chapter, that Ramsay has headed off to open up Mate Caelan. But Stannis believes if he can swoop in and take his enemies home, it will have the same devastating effect it once did for Robb Stark. So begins what is very much a hinge point for this northern plot. 
This, again, could have very easily been the end of Stannis and the hopes for justice in the North if not for Jon Snow's presence in this council meeting. We will find out later that Arnolf is indeed loyal to Roos and has sent this information to Stannis, hoping that he'll do exactly as he claims he will here and march on the Dreadfort. Arnolf is given false representation of the numbers left to defend the castle and is planning to trap Stannis once he gets there. If he does, dead. Dunzo. Even without this knowledge, Jon says only failure lies in this choice. If I take the Dreadfort unawares, you won't, Jon blurted. It was as if he'd whacked his wasp's nest with a stick. One of the Queen's men laughed, one spat, one muttered a curse, and the rest all tried to talk at once. The boy has milk water in his veins, said Sir Godfrey the Giant Slayer, and Lord Sweethuffed, the craven sees an outlaw behind every blade of grass. In the end, John is brave enough to stand up for the truth. He easily could have kept his tongue here. He could have said, if you want to disagree with me, or listen to your Queen's men idiots, then go for it. It'll probably do more for my image both here at Castle Black and down in King's Landing anyway. John could have let the derision or the name-calling stop him. He could have claimed it would be breaking his oaths, but he doesn't. He just tells the simple truth. Let's be thankful that Stannis is smart enough to at least hear him out in the first place. John thinks the plan's so foolish he doesn't even know where to start. So he begins with the first danger. To get there, you've got to go down the King's Road and then over the Lonely Hills. Sounds simple enough. But without moors on your side, the Umbers are going to hack you to pieces. This land is difficult enough without facing an enemy, but an enemy that knows every tree and every rock, as he says here, you're screwed. Okay, Stannis is smart, he's a military man, he knows the truth in that. So, alright, fine. Problem solved. I'll surrender Moore's term, and there we go. Nuh-uh, says Jon Snow, because then you've got to deal with the castle itself. As we saw in Fionn's chapter, it is not a friendly place. And Jon explains, in a moment, he knows the castle personally, and its strength is well provisioned. It's got massive towers and walls. It took two years for an ancient Stark to starve them out. What hope do you have in this current situation? It'll be incredibly tough to take, and before you know it, the Boltons will be behind you, stranding you in the middle of the north with winter coming, dwindling food, and no way to get back to your lone, friendly base in this kingdom. Hang about, hang about, says Stannis. We've just established the Boltons are headed to Moat Kaelin, so they can't be defending their castle or planning a trap. Again, remember this is 100% what Arnulf was planning anyway, and the Dreadfort absolutely will be defended. Basically, it's the second Death Star plan in Return of the Jedi. This could have all ended up very easily with Stannis having to do an Admiral Akbar impression. It's a trap and that kind of thing. Only John is protecting him from that. And John, again, doesn't even know that, but he knows the danger. He can sense it. The Summoners believe Moat Kaelin is going to be a real issue and keep the Boltons tied up for an age, allowing them a good shot at the Dreadfort. Yet again, John's knowledge as a Northerner is absolutely indispensable and Stannis would have been beyond screwed about it. The Southerners have only ever considered Moat Kaelin from one side the south. They don't know about his weaknesses to the north, the ones Ramsay is about to expose. Moat Kaelin is going to swing open like a saloon door, and a huge army is going to head straight for them at the Dreadfort, or even beat them there. Jon turned back to Stannis. Sire, this is a bold stroke, but the risk? The Night's Watch takes no part, he thought. Baratheon or Bolton should be the same to me. If Roose Bolton should catch you beneath his walls with his main strength, it will be the end for all of you. So Jon allows himself a final moment to wonder if he's overstepping his mark, but at the end of the day, if he doesn't, it can only result in a slaughter. And it just so happens that that will be really bad for him personally, as both a Stark and a Lord Commander. The Southern Lords have still not had enough of Jon's logic and reason. They still contend the risk is worth it for risk's sake. That they'll be fighting 50 old men or young boys, that they'll have the Karstarks joining them. Even Stannis says they can rage seize towers and take this castle. He also seems initially to have ignored Jon as he declares that all women will be left behind, numbers be damned, and that the wildlings will go with them to make up their van, and Jon is going to have to equip them. Ugh, big side time. He means to plunder our armoury, John realised. Food and clothing, land and castles, now weapons. He draws me in deeper every day. Words might not be swords, but swords were swords. Oh dear. He only meant to give some advice, now he's ending up providing actual war equipment. The Night's Watch position was dodgy enough when it was food and shelter, but this? 
never mind the Iron Throne. Imagine the uproar from John's own men, from this king who dumped thousands of wildlings on their doorstep, is then going to deprive them of anything to defend themselves with should they rise, or should another attack come on the wall. John tries to offer as little as possible, especially when he considers the fact these are wildlings specifically he'll be arming. That's going to piss off the men even more, the northern lords even more, we're going to put them in a bad position when the war finishes, and basically we'll just get John scorned from every direction. Letting them through was bad enough, now you're arming them. It's that last point that John seizes on now to try and save the situation a bit. He asks for the wildlings to be left behind. Yes, that does mean more mouths at Castle Black, linking to the chapter opening. It means more soldier types to deal with, but it's better than the alternative. Again, John uses his superior knowledge of Northern heritage, culture, and history to prove that taking the wildlings will also result in disaster, as there's no way the Umbers will let you through with them. One of Moors' own daughters was kidnapped by them. So just like that, we've gone full circle. This is the very first argument that John made against the march, and maybe he's finally got through. After showing some disdain for the Umbers and the other Northerners, Stannis finally orders everyone out so he can talk to John one-on-one. -on -one. These southern knights aren't too happy, but they obey and leave, including Mance slash Rattleshirt, who you completely forgot was there in the first place. I'm sure he relished learning all this specific information and getting a better measure of Jon Snow as a leader. All that is left behind is Melisandre, of course, as well as good old Devon. As we discussed back when the Wrong Way Rangers first came up, Stannis informs Jon that Horp and Massey both want Winterfell and maybe Val as well. He tries to goad Jon a bit by laying out the choice. Which would you have as Lord of Winterfell, Snow? The Smiler or the Slayer? Jon said, Winterfell belongs to my sister Sansa. Hell yeah, Jon, way to stick up for your sister. Yes, we know Bran and Rickon are alive and Rob's will is somewhere, but Jon doesn't. And even though Sansa is the Stark sibling he has the least connection to, he still sticks up for her here. It's the second time Sansa's rule of the North has come up, so we can all hop aboard Queen Sansa train that is slowly gathering steam. Stannis doesn't want to hear that though. Annoyed Jon didn't take the bait, he decides to be a bit more direct and brings up the offer he gave at the end of Storm. What if Jon was to become Lord of Winterfell? Wouldn't that be great for everyone? Jon gets his home, Stannis gets a lot more lords on his side via an alliance with Jon, and White Harbour specifically will be his, whose value who explains for us once again. It's win-win. It is not too late to amend your folly, Snow. Take a knee and swear that bastard sword to me, and rise as Jon Stark, Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North. How many times will he make me say it? The chapter sequencing is loud and clear. The temptation. It's not a new temptation, true, but it's still just as hard. It is strikingly similar to Daenerys, having everything laid before here, everything that he wants. And it's right there for the taking, but Jon says, My sword is sworn to the Night's Watch. It's a choice Jon has already had once, and he doesn't hesitate here in the end. Stannis is not happy, just as he wasn't the first time round, so he switches tactics to annoy Jon by suggesting they give Winterfell to Arnav Karstark instead. Jon tries his best to be okay with that, better a Northman than a Southerner, but that particular house, they'd played too big a part in Rob's downfall for him to be okay with that. He also refutes Stannis' claim that this will put Stark blood back in Winterfell, pretty much any Northern family will do that, and he argues that Arnolf might die during the war. He argues and argues with a steadily more annoyed Stannis before ultimately suggesting Moore's Umber, which of our superior knowledge can agree is indeed a better choice. Stannis says the attack on the Dreadfort can help him decide. Yes, after all this back and forth and Jon's brilliant intelligence, Stannis still means to go ahead. He spent too long waiting on Dragonstone to repeat himself here at Castle Black. He needs to get on with something. Jon tries to delay him via a refocusing on the Mandalays, but Stannis wipes that away. He's heard no word and he considers them lost. And he says he will not grieve for Davos if so. How bloody dare you? You wouldn't even be up here without him. Bloody Stannis. He goes into petty mode a bit. No White Harbour, no Jon Stark means I must absolutely go into battle and try to emulate Robert. So it's sighing time again for John. But here he comes with an idea. He must not take part, but he's not going to do anything he hasn't done already, and can't you paint this as protecting the realms of men if it means ultimately saving lives and pushing back those more brutal? 
That's technically included in the vows, right? We can pitch that. The Night's Watch takes no part, a voice said. But another replied, Stannis fights of the realm, the Iron Men for rules and plunder. Your Grace, I know where you might find more men. Give me the wildlings, and I will gladly tell you where and how. Yes, mere knowledge is not enough. John is also savvy enough to make sure he actually gets something out of this deal. He has something Stannis needs, and Stannis has a lot that he needs, so let's make a deal. Besides, he argues, the wildlings are far more valuable to the Night's Watch than Stannis, and John can replace them with maybe 3,000 fighting men. Stannis says, This had best not be some bastard's trick. Will I trade 300 fighters for 3,000? Aye, I will. I am not an utter fool. If I leave the girl of you as well, do I have your word that you will keep our princess closely? She is not a princess, John thought. As you wish, your grace. Do I need to make you swear an oath before a tree? No. Was that a jape? With Stannis? It was hard to tell. I'm also going to guess no. It probably wasn't a joke, but it's fun to imagine it was. Thus, John opens us up to the one area of the north we've never really interacted with, save for the Mormons. The northwest, the mountains, the land of the clans. Rereaders know the cool characters will get pouring out of there later on, the clear loyalty to House Stark, so this is a very cool moment indeed. Yet still, Stannis needs educating when John says Stannis should ask for their loyalty. If there's a sure way to raise the Baratheon blood pressure, that's probably it. So just like the rest of the chapter, it's left to John to explain what he means. Northerners are not like the rest of Westeros, and the clans are not like the Northerners. These are a completely different type of people, and without this specific knowledge, you'll get nothing out of them. You must go to them yourself, eat with them, drink with them, socialise, basically. Just be cool about it. It's pretty funny it's Stannis who has to wind up doing this, given it sounds like his specific nightmare, but John has the right of it. There are more ways than one of earning loyalty, surprised as you might be to hear it, and this one is one that will work. You can see the shades of Eddard Stark and his approach to ruling, how he did it properly, living on in Jon Snow here. How many clans are you speaking of? Two score, small and large. Flint, Wool, Norrie, Little. Win old Flint and Big Bucket, the rest will follow. Big Bucket? Hell yeah, Big Bucket, Stannis. You don't even know how lucky you are you're getting Big Bucket on your side. John sweetens the deal with guides and garons, and even reminds us of his younger self when he brings up Daron and the young dragon and his war on Dawn. Leave it to Stannis to suck all the fun of that particular tale with things like actual details, of course he does. Fine then, he says, I'll put up with these absolute heaviest of terms, woe is me. But John has one more consideration to add to this absolutely brilliant chapter of his. You can't burn heart trees or anything of that nature, or the whole venture will fail. But Mel counteracts that immediately by saying she is staying right here with him. John is stunned. This is most unexpected by him, and probably for the first time reader as well. Stannis had spent so much time lamenting the fact he didn't take her onto the Blackwater, so why would he leave her behind now? We likely think it's something to do with her magic being strongest here, beneath the wall, or her interest in John, and we wouldn't really be wrong on either count. Either way, as rereaders know, this single line is probably as important as any other in the chapter in terms of what we will all expect to happen in wins. Talk about this chapter really setting up the future of so many different plot points, and this one absolutely hurts the mark. Before John can even react, Stannis asks a final question. Okay, I'll gather these 3,000 newbies, but then what? You said no dreadful, so where? And John wastes no time in selecting Deepwood Mark. You can get there unseen, you can likely take it with ease, and the optics of doing so are probably even greater than that of taking the dreadful. You'll be fighting against the Ironborn. You'll be fighting for the North. Stannis likes that idea. Being Iron Man, he knows that tune. The North will take that song, and he'll get all the credit. So he agrees, the new path is set, and Jon Snow is to thank. So that's a victory. Or is it? John links us back to the beginning of the chapter with his final remark. He's kept the wildlings, the ones some of his own men hate him for, the ones that might starve them completely, the ones that are already trouble on their own. He may well have just saved the North, but what about that castle we sworn to? Hence ends what is, I must say, one of my favourite John chapters. Despite the fact you can describe it as an infantry taking followed by one meeting, and that's it, John Ford does an insane job of showing how utterly brilliant this guy is. I do not understand why people call him unintelligent. I just don't. And beyond intelligence, he's just good. 
He's the one willing to make the hard call at the beginning. He's the one not letting insults to ego or manhood bother him, not letting little squabbles distract him. He's the one with a wonderful amount of political, cultural, personal and historical knowledge and he knows how to use it for good. True, this is all sliding into helping himself out via Stannis, but overall, he's trying to protect the North and the Watch. How long that will be possible remains to be seen, but I commend the chapter for showing us exactly the type of guy and leader that Jon Snow is. So for that, I thank you, Jon 4. And now for something completely different, as they like to say. Normally, Jon is the one involved in the more magical type of things, the overall story, instead of the political. But as you've just seen, he's taken a switch this week, so maybe Tyrion is too. Yes, this is going to be very, very different from what we're used to. Tyrion 5. Here we come to what is, frankly, a bit of an enigma of a chapter. We are no strangers to mysteries in A Song of Ice and Fire. It's one of the key components of the series. You can find threads and lists of them here, there and everywhere. That's one of the best parts of being a fan. And for pretty much all of them, even the ones we're getting later on in the series, there's at least some hint and connection or theory that we can get out of them. Something we can say, well that is probably headed towards that, it's probably linked to this person, uh, I think it's going to end up in this, blah blah blah, you know the score. Sometimes there's ones with fewer options, but there's normally something. It is very, very rare we ever have a question without some form of answer, but to be honest, that's exactly what we seem to have in Tyrion 5. Earlier on in the Daenerys chapter, we spoke about chapter beginnings and the usual tone we have set at the opening. Well, Tyrion 5 has a tone we are very much used to, but we normally find it with Bran, Jon, like I said, Theon, or maybe a Sam, perhaps even an Arya in a sense. It's the creepiness, it's the horror show, the high tension type of atmosphere. There is something magical on the periphery of our vision. There is some monster out there that we're just waiting to see. You know the kind of chapter to which I refer. There are plenty of examples. We've been through loads of them together. But they've never really applied to Tyrion. He's always been at the other end of the spectrum of the Song of Ice and Fire. He's the political. He's the reality-based. Doesn't have any of those magical elements normally. Sometimes very, very slightly, but not normally. Sure, he's in new territory, physical territory here in Dance, but that overall setting hasn't really changed for him until we reach Tyrion 5, where our half-man is thrown into something we might expect to find more commonly above the wall. This is a horror chapter, make no mistake. It's the same as the Night Fort, it's the same as Sam's March, even if not on quite the same level in intensity. But the key components are there. The idea of being watched or followed, being surrounded by wreck and ruin, everybody in the chapter clearly being on edge, and again, the promise of monsters, of something just not being quite right. And George is a master of getting that feeling across to us, so you know it. And that atmosphere is set long before we even get to the truly creepy, completely mystifying, seemingly matrix glitch type thing of Tyrion and the Shy Maid apparently passing under the same bridge twice while sailing down a straight river. To me, this is almost singular in the entire series as something just defying any explanation and to be and to be honest, it is quite outside the norm for George. If this is some form of magic or sorcery, then it's a hell of a lot more potent than anything we've seen from Melisandre or anyone else. Magic is normally subtle, it's normally more reality-based than you'd think, and it's nowhere near this extravagant. If, of course, it is magic, we've got no idea. Clearly, this whole thing is very much tied into the removal of the meeting with the Shrouded Lord, like we've previously discussed, and we can assume that this was some kind of build-up to that. But if the meeting was removed by George, then why leave this phenomenon in? Does that hint we'll still meet the Shrouded Lord in the future? That this event in itself is of importance? That maybe we'll get answers about it all one day? I sure hope so, because right now we have zero answers, to be honest, and that is most unlike us as a fandom. So that is obviously a huge part of this chapter we're going to dive into. The creepy aura and the idea of the magical, or at least the unnatural. All these things that are so unlike Tyrion, and yet that isn't even the main point of the chapter. 
Within this wrapping of suspense and horror and intrigue, George drops his, what is, when we get down to it, a put the book down moment. There are only a few of them in the series, and I know you're going through them in your head right now as I'm speaking. And this one kind of sneaks in there. I'm not even sure you'd feel the true weight of it on the first read. You might have to wait a couple of pages for it to really hit you. But boy, when you realise what it is Tyrion is saying, what he's built off what was revealed in Tyrion 4, well, last week we had a lot of big moments, but I'm not sure even they can compete with this huge bomb drop. One that ties back to the very foundations of the series as we learnt them in the Game of Thrones. It changes the way we've looked at the series as we've gone on through this project, and it completely skews our vision of what the future might hold. This, indeed, is serious stuff. We'd best get into it and not delay any further. So like I say, there's an altogether different mood to start this chapter. The nice day in the life vibe of the shy maid that we had last time has already gone and it's replaced by fog, by pacing, praying and the checking of weapons. Tyrion is also noting precisely where people are which always sets a certain tone I think. It's Halden Halfmaester who verbalises the feeling of the crew finding themselves in an unwelcome spot. Given all the sights of the last chapter, the wide waters and the colourful turtles that almost seemed hard to imagine, well we're in a very different place now. Tyrion tries to lighten the mood a bit by equating their surroundings to it's just a little fog, chill out, while privately admitting to himself it's actually a whole lot of fog. So much so that he can't even see young Griff on the prow, that's the front for you land lovers, and he's sitting in the ship's centre with what seems like a super important job, keeping the brazier lit. I know that we made a comparison to Sam's early horror chapters, well that's very much a part of it isn't it, keeping the fire lit, remember that march down from the fist of the first men, how important keeping those fires with you, keeping them aflame was for everybody, it was like the whole thing, the whole point, and it feels a little bit similar here. Sights are apparently not enough for the mood to be complete, so Yasilla adds in some stories of sorcery and ships going missing in these mists, of madness and hunger, and the spirits left behind both above and below the waterline. Yeah, way to read the room Yasilla, that's sure to keep everyone calm and breezy. Tyrion will need more than that to put him on edge though, or at least to publicly put him on edge. Privately, he again admits there is something not right here, here's the quote. Though his tone was light, he was uneasy. This was a bad place, rank with despair and death. Yasilla is not wrong. This fog is not natural. Something foul grew in the waters here and festered in the air. So as we seem to say at the beginning of every chapter we've read from George, job done in terms of setting the atmosphere and catching our attention early on. We want to know why this place is so creepy. We want to know what the eventual reveal is because we always get one. Yasilla adds on more rumours of the dead coming for the living, which finally prompts Halden Halfmaester to bring some logic into the proceedings. It is hunger that motivates the stone men, he says. Nothing edible grows here despite the presence of the river. And we get this cool world-building note of Volantis dealing to feed the stone men three times a year, though it's usually just to bring more victims to this cursed place rather than feeding. Curse seems to be the right word, for Yasilla and Halden agree that neither the fish of the water or the air around them should be taken in. According to Halden, it is because of Garin's curse, another name for grayscale as we've discussed before. Tyrion doesn't see the point in such a warning because the fog is completely inescapable and he gives us another roundup of the symptoms of this disease that keeps creeping into the narrative as well as several remedies claimed by the maesters and the septons. He mainly rounds it up by its effect on children, which is handy as we obviously know it best due to Shireen, but highlighting that children can never catch it again also highlights that adults do not have the same benefit. Either way, he tries to keep the conversation scientific by blaming foul humours in the air rather than anything more magical. 
but Yasilla really wants to make her mark in this chapter and claims this stain upon the world has lasted so long because it is even powerful enough to take down the dragon lords as we get a very quick summary of Garin and the wars of the Roinish against the Valerians. I think it's the second spice war officially. I have to double check but I'm pretty sure. If you need a quick refresher this is one of my personal favourite parts of the World of Ice and Fire book but you'll recall that this was a war about a thousand years ago between the Roinish and then a combined force of the Valerians and Valantis. The Roinish were represented or led by Prince Garin of Croyane, which is where we are now. And he actually had some initial success until, well, the Valerians, they decided that, right, we'll take this seriously. And they sent 300 dragons out to deal with the problem. I think you can imagine what happened. And the legend goes, as we get a few hints of here, that Prince Garin was brought back to this city and put up in a cage and made to watch as it was burnt down around him. But then he decided, okay, in vengeance, I'm going to call upon the waters of the Roin to come and sweep you all away and drown you. And apparently, that is what happened. Most readers will know the tail end of this story a little bit better because this is what kicked off Nymeria and her 10,000 ships escaping from the Roinar and ending up in Dawn, as we know. So back to right here, though we know the eventual victors, and obviously the Valerians did a lot better than the Roinish, Yusilla is sure that her beloved Roin and Garin took at least this one major win in managing to drown that force of Valerians, and the resulting mix of water and fire produces the fog we see today, is what she says. It's a quick tale here in the text, but like I say, it's a great part of the World of Ice and Fire book, and one of my personal favourites. Though he'd never admit it, Yusilla playing the associate version of Old Nan does actually work on Tyrion. The stump of Tyrion's nose was itching again. He gave it a scratch. The old woman may be right. This place is no good. I feel as if I am back in the privy again, watching my father die. Young Griff, being imbued with either the confidence or the ego of youth, sheds off such worries even as Lamor brings up this shrouded lord figure that we've discussed so much. That in turn brings Yandri into the conversation on his wife's legend-based side by claiming whatever the shrouded lord is, he has ruled this part of the world since it became like this. And many will tell you it was Garen himself, the spirit, the legend. Like we spoke about when we brought this up before, there is an opposite taking that Howden champions here, that the shrouded lord is a title merely inherited or taken up whenever the last one dies by mortal figures, creating the impression of someone living for a thousand years. We've certainly seen this kind of claim about the older figures of Westerosi history, the original Durans of Storm's End or the Garth Greenhand of the Reach. Alas, this is all a mere tease from George right now. Assumedly, Tyrion would have found some kind of answer in the cutscene of their meeting, but we may never find out about this particular history of this particular figure. I suppose there is a possibility that someone will have to travel back up this route in Winds, maybe Jerris and Archibald alongside the Tattered Prince on their way to Pentos, I don't know. Other than that, well, technically, Tyrion, Barristan, Daenerys, Victarion are all possibilities as POVs, but it's very hard to imagine that being put into place. Perhaps we'll hear of some meeting from a non-POV character, but I think it much more likely we're probably not going to meet this guy, whether he be pirate, corsair, or kind of godlike legend figure. We don't know. Griff tries to regain some sense by ordering everyone to shut up, but in a display of his perhaps less than stellar leadership skills, that order is immediately ignored by Lamore, gasping, what was that? George really wants to create this horror atmosphere that we know he's so capable of, and a sure way to do it is by hammering someone point off screen, sure that they've seen something no one else can see. Now we're all just waiting for someone to burst out of this fog and make us jump, but George knows his old craft. Hint and hint and make us wait so this feeling grows. This would be creepy enough on its own, but they also happy to be sailing through this ruined city, and they pass fragmented statues, and they see staircases that go nowhere. The city and fog work in tandem to make each other seem so much worse. We've already seen ruins on this trip, but they seem to pale in comparison to the scope of destruction that we see here, and Yandri confirms to us that we've come to what was once the most beautiful city on the Rhoyne, as well as the richest, Croyane, the festival city. And look at it now, completely ruined. 
George seems to keep hitting us with this message during this trip through Essos, that things can change. And being grand and powerful and rich as you might be, it all amounts to the same ability to fall. Whether we want to take that message as evidence of the destructive powers of dragons, or purely that a fool can come to anyone, is up to us. But when George gets repetitive on a point, it normally means something. I personally take it as a warning that the Westeros map, maybe even the Essos one as well, is not going to look the same when we finish. We might be really expecting that for King's Landing, but I doubt it to only end there. Old Town might end up just as submerged as this place. Literally anywhere is vulnerable to dragons, whether they are directed by Daenerys or someone else. The point being that this kind of destruction can happen anywhere, and we've already seen so much unthinkable history happen in the Seven Kingdoms through the first three books especially, we've discussed that before, but I bet it's going to seem truly tame compared to what we get in the last two. All these structures, all these things that people are certain of that will never change, probably going to change and going to die. Just as Tyrion is thinking, too rich, too beautiful, which could easily apply to half of his family as well, and on the dragons that did this, he sees a half-seen shape with pale, leathery wings beating at the fog. So are we to believe this is Tyrion's first half-sighting of a dragon? That Drogon could have possibly come this far? Hmm, no. I think it's far too far for Drogon, and besides, the wings are described as pale, and I'm pretty sure Drogon has darker colouring. But the mere thought of seeing a dragon in this place that was ripped apart by them is enough for readers at this point. Eventually, something actually does emerge from the mists, or half appear anyway. Enough for the Shy Maid's crew to call out into the fog for a hello. What comes back is news of the war. We know all about that thanks to Quentin and Daenerys, but these lot don't. So suddenly Griff is the one shouting and asking for more information. War obviously can have a large effect on his plans, if it disrupts his travel, Danny's travel, if it ends up involving the Golden Company, or if they are sailing right into danger. At the end of the day, for all the scheming, his top priority is keeping young Griff safe no matter what, so he wants to know. Unfortunately, the answer they get back isn't all that helpful to them. Nyesos and Malakwo go hand in hand, and the elephants show stripes. Are these people related to Quaif? Why can't anyone give a straight answer around here? Griff, Tyrion and the reader are all kind of nonplussed about this message. We can likely work out it means that people are switching teams in some manner down in Volantis and there's going to be some kind of upheaval, but it really means nothing to us at this point until we can really come upon the city itself later. And even then, not everything is crystal clear. If this boat had known the true causes of war, he could have shouted something about the March to Marine to battle the Dragon Queen. Imagine how useful that could have been. Alas, not this time. What we can really glean right now is that Illyro has paid money into the Volantine election. So will that also be of importance once Volantis truly comes into our view, as we expect? Tyrion is believing these two parties we've heard about might fuse together if dragons are coming. We are sailing through evidence of what it is like to face them, so it might be a good idea. And in fairness, most cities surrounding Marine are teaming up to take Danny down, so, so Tyrion is onto something here. After being told off a little bit, Tyrion yet again equates Griff to his father. I wonder if he'll be against anyone who tries to impose any authority over him ever again. He shows another Tywinism over what will keep a man true and his sincere belief that only blood and steel will do. So something else I wonder is if we'll see evidence of this in the future, this change from his lifelong backup line of gold to a new, more violent one. Here's another quote. The little man stirred the coals again and blew on them to make them burn brighter. I hate this. I hate this fog. I hate this place and I am less than fond of Griff. The mood has changed on the boat but also within Tyrion himself. In Tyrion 4, he was probably the happiest we've seen him so far, or at least the most not unhappy we've seen him. But that's gone now. His mood is black and dark thanks to this horrible fog. You have to wonder if it's purely this sense of oncoming danger, the creepy setting, or whether there are actually foul humours in the air making him feel worse. Lots of people theorise that Peter Baelish uses candles to incite certain moods, so if that's true, why can't a cursed fog do the same? Tyrion's mood is so dark he even contemplates using those poison mushrooms he has hidden in his shoe to murder Griff. 
It's not like it's something he's actually tried to act on, but still, this announcement is incredibly jarring. We've seen Tyrion want to murder people, we've seen him actually do it as well, but normally, these feelings have come after a long build-up and an understandable reason or motivation. This is different. This is completely different. Tyrion honestly entertains the idea of cold-blooded murder of a man who obviously means something to a fair few people. This would wound people emotionally. And it's merely because he's been a bit short of him. Other than banning alcohol, that's literally all Griff has done. And Tyrion has only known him for a matter of days. But the merest comparison to Tywin, and that's apparently enough for Tyrion. My my, how far he has fallen. This is not a good look for him. Further and further the boat goes, with the settings not improving their mood one iota. George decides to double down on this idea of devastation and loss by having them drift past what was once the Palace of Love and has now become the Palace of Sorrow. All ruined, all desolate, all fallen. It's quite fitting for Tyrion himself to see these specific sights. What we are witnessing in this scenery is exactly how Tyrion feels about his own life. Okay, he might not have referred to himself as the Festival City, but he once did feel on top of the world, perhaps even twice if we count his handship, and now feels his entire life and is in control of it have become ruined, desolate, and fallen just like this place and again it's just another good reminder for us this palace was 10 times the size of the red keep apparently and 100 times more beautiful that bit's not so difficult and it still went down and became this haunted horrible ghost ruin so what does that say about the actual red keep's chances Tyrion is seriously not in the correct mood to be fixating on things that have gone downhill or matters of love but that's exactly what he does here the ruin was sad enough but knowing what it had been made it even sadder he imagines what once was and has now been lost forever which is exactly what he figures his own happiness to be as well. Naturally, the idea of lost love and marriages points him towards Taisha, but he is so foul right now he does not dwell on the short beauty they had together and instead finally allows himself to feel the pain of who he believes is to blame. Tyrion has resisted thinking about Jaime for essentially the entire book thus far. Hating Tywin is easy. He already felt like that, and even something as horrific as the Taisha episode isn't completely unbelievable for him. But Jaime, well, that's a different matter. Here's the quote. He was my own blood. My big strong brother. When I was small he brought me toys, barrel hoops and blocks and a carved wooden lion. He gave me my first pony and taught me how to ride him. When he said he had bought you for me, I never doubted him. Why would I? We've discussed this ad nauseum, especially when Jamie actually revealed the truth to Tyrion in Storm, but Jamie was the single person in the world who truly loved Tyrion, who treated him properly and with respect and adoration as Tyrion remembers here. The fact that the trust and love that Tyrion has guided so closely with everyone else he's ever met belonged to the person who actually did lie to him is just terrible to think about. More so than that, it relates back to something else we've also discussed a lot, that Tyrion spent his whole adult life believing he could only be loved for gold because, apart from Jamie, that's what the evidence suggested. Again, it's the worst possible eventuality for Tyrion. There's no one that could have hurt him more. And yet again, Tyrion is imagining the murder of his father, he's relishing in it, and remembering the eternal question that was formed from his final words. He still has no answers, he still very much hates the world, and he still very much wants to get out of this blasted fog. Just as Halden is assuring them all that the other side is pretty great, young Griff sees another light, so our hackles go up, or the nose begins to itch in Tyrion's case. Something seems wrong, on top of the general atmosphere we've already got. We've already been worried about monsters coming out of the fog, so we're basically just waiting for George to reveal whatever he's hiding, and this might be it. As it turns out, the lights from above are revealed to be the Bridge of Dream, according to Griff. And I'm going to admit, it's a name that really annoys me. It just sounds wrong. It should be plural. Bridge of Dreams sounds so much better. Eh, annoying. But that aside, I think we've finally found some monsters, as we spy stone men moving over this bridge. Hearing from both Griff and Howden they will not bother or perhaps even see the Shy Maid, only convinces us that they almost definitely will. 
Tyrion gives us yet more information on the nature of the disease and how it begins with black toenails, etc. This is a clear setting up of John Connington's storyline later in the book, as well as being included in Tyrion's own plot as he has to constantly check himself as well. And in general, it just reminds us how utterly brutal this disease is, which is useful to know when a possible pandemic is going to start in Winds. I do keep wondering if the current climate of our own world is going to influence George's writings of these specific aspects of the story. People have always tried to attach his writing to the events of the world at the time, and there aren't many world events bigger than our current one. So does living through a pandemic make George focus on Grayscale or the Pale Mare more, or does he lean away from it to give himself a break from the current issues? We'll find out one day, I suppose. Like the rest of the city, this bridge is just as broken and crumbling. The only difference is, this ruin is covered in half-living creatures. Griff decides it's time for solid action, lit torches, drawn swords, and getting the important cargo below to safety as he orders young Griff to take them all to her cabin. It's easy enough to throw the kid a bone and let him think he's doing the protecting instead of being protected. Fine, doesn't cost much, does it? Unfortunately, that's not enough this time round. Not when the first taste of real danger is in the air. Later on in the book, John Connington will look back this time and the times before where they name young Griff was in full use and he'll think of it fondly as an era where he could control the lad and would be obeyed. Later on, when his supposed true name is revealed, he'll believe himself far above the orders of one John Connington and the seeds for that dynamic are set here as young Griff throws a paddy about being sent to bed early. We get the impression this kind of interaction has happened plenty of times before and it's usually gone John Con's way, but not this time. The lad is aware he's been wrapped in cotton wool and now that something's actually happening, he wants to experience it. You can't blame him. You can't be told you're like Mr. Destiny and then never be allowed to do anything. That's not going to work for any teenager. It seems the last straw for him is that the other non-fighters are being allowed to stay, most especially Tyrion. You're a dwarf, young Griff said scornfully. Yes, you can teach him skills and knowledge and all these other things, but you can't make him perfect as we see here. That's not a very nice thing to say. So whether it's because he's offended, because he hates Griff, or just because he wants to sow some chaos, Tyrion finally decides to act on what he learnt last time. No one gives a mummer's fart wherever I live or die. At least of all me, he thought. You though, you are everything. We only get time for one warning from Griff before a whale comes through the fog to distract us all from the key reveal in classic fashion. But only for a moment this time. They are suddenly going under the bridge with the river itself becoming angry. The stone men are in high numbers and we think something's going to happen. But then no, they are through and the boat is stonemanless. So young Griff pounces, demanding to know what Tyrion meant. And Tyrion explains quite calmly. If any of the rest of them died, it'd be an acceptable loss. But if young Griff goes, this all stops. The entire journey, the entire plot, all of it. He is it. He is the point. And unfortunately, young Griff shows his age and lack of political experience when he basically straight up admits, yeah, he is exactly that. When he turns to John Con and says, he knows who I am. As Tyrion inspects the boy's face, Griff issues another warning, but this particular tide is getting away from him. Tyrion lays out all the various clues and questions we've been asking ever since we came aboard the Shy Maid, as he confirms his own accusation. But so far, we only know he's something of importance. We haven't been told what. So here comes the big moment of the chapter. One of the biggest moments of the book. And like I said earlier, definitely one of those put the book down times. I admit, you have noble features for a dead boy. The boy flushed. I am not dead. How not? My lord father wrapped your corpse in a crimson cloak and laid you down beside your sister at the foot of the iron throne, his gift to the new king. Those who had the stomach to lift the cloak said that half your head was gone. Yeah, mouth drop time. Our mind's going to overdrive to catch up with what's actually going on here. Is Tyrion genuinely suggesting? No, no, surely not. No, wait, he is. Tyrion is saying that young Griff is Aegon, son of Rhaegar. He's saying we're standing in front of a Targaryen. And suddenly all, all these clues that we've had throughout all these books are zooming back to us, and some of them even being quite recent. We've highlighted them for you here in this project. Hang about, hang about. We need a second here. 
This single paragraph has the capacity to change the entire way we look at this book, even the whole series. But let's do dance first. We've spent ages hearing about grand plans from Ilio and Varys being involved, and linking up with Daenerys and returning to Westeros in a glorious taking of the throne. Ilio spoke about fire and blood, and we thought he meant Daenerys. He was speaking about Targaryens. Well, there's only one of them, but now, well, we're not so sure. If this is Rhaegar's child, what does that mean for Danny's claim? So that links into how we've seen the whole series. Right from the beginning, we thought about Danny returning, this being Danny's story, Danny's throne. She's the singer since Viserys died. She's the lone representative of this family around which the fate of Westeros has swirled for three centuries. She is the only dragon. I mean, she has them. Except now, apparently, she's not. The Targaryens in A Song of Ice and Fire just doubled. Boy, oh boy, do we miss Aemon. So does this mean we might have another dragon rider? Is he going to get one of Danny's dragons? Is he going to get his own? Does it mean that he's involved in Destiny 2? This is Rhaegar's son. Is he supposed to have a role to play in the ultimate battle for humanity? Is this who Rhaegar was looking for? What does it mean about Jon? Let's not forget, this is also a staple of the series we've known since the very beginning. One of the very first facets of this world we had set up and really hammered into us was Robert's Rebellion and this particular murder of two children and their mother. It was a major, major part of Ned Stark's personality and his own trauma, and we've just been told it's all fake, or at least half of it is. This is foundation-rocking stuff. This is big. I don't know how else to put it. This is big. And there's also a second reveal to be done at the same time, even if it's what we already know. Tyrion figures he might as well go all in on pissing Griff off and playing with these major pieces he's found himself with, and reveals that he is none other than Tyrion Lannister, the son who killed the father that originally presented Rob Baratheon with what we thought was the corpse of the boy in front of us. And why not go for the hat-trick by confirming the one more hidden to us already? Griff is John Connington, the former hand of Aerys Targaryen, exiled lord supposedly drunk and dead, and bestie to Rhaegar, and also related to Red Ronnet, whom you'll remember we super hate. You'd almost wonder why Griff isn't making a bigger effort to shut Tyrion up, but it seems his attention is elsewhere. He's watching where they're going, so Tyrion joins him and George plays his grand trick. It starts innocently enough. The description of a hand poking out of the water. Just another one, we figure, and so does Tyrion. But then George really starts applying pressure. A trickle of moisture ran down his spine and made him shudder. Yeah, that is atmosphere-setting stuff. So now we start noticing. These exact descriptions of statues and ruins have been used before. And Tyrion is joining us in our suspicion until he sees a staircase that goes nowhere. No, thought Tyrion. That is not possible. And we thought that was bad, but then there are lights high in the air and the entire crew are staring wordlessly before they come back to the Bridge of Dreams. And now we're really thinking, what the fuck? What the hell is happening in this chapter? And like we said at the beginning, to be honest, I've got zero answer for you. I'm not sure anyone in the fandom does. I've definitely never heard any definitive theory, but feel free to correct me if you have one. This is as big a mystery as any other in the series, and one we have possibly the least clues for ever. It's a river. It's not supposed to turn around, and they haven't kind of turned off or anything. So how in the world did we get here? Was the first one a fake, a vision, sent with a glass candle or similar? Again, like we mentioned in the intro to this chapter, we have to assume that it's connected in some way to the shrouded lord that Tyrion was due to meet, and maybe there's some level of sorcery at play. But if so, this is so much more powerful than anything we've seen before. Whether the lord provided a vision of the first one, or the damage done by the wars of fire and water created a kind of ripple in the world, caused a kind of dream or alternative world that we've seen in other fantasy series well that one's a bit too far for me we've seen no evidence of that elsewhere but who am i to say one idea i have heard mentioned that does stick with me is that this doubling up only happens after Tyrion announces young griff as a targ and himself as a lannister so did the shrouded lord hear that and then teleport them back 100 feet up the river to pass the bridge again is it something to do with this boat the kingfisher we don't know 
If so, what does the Shrouded Lord want with the Targaryens or the Lannisters? Why would they want them dead? Does the magic of the Roin have some kind of self-defence against dragon lords and Targaryens? It is supposed to be one of these hinges of the world, possibly powerful in its own type of magic, so maybe. Again, I really cannot say, but I truly hope we get answers one day, because this is unlike anything else in the Song of Ice and Fire. Make sure you appreciate it. Aside from that, your guess is as good as mine on this count. But back to the actual crew. They are obviously and fairly freaking out. They're going to have to pass this bridge again, and they're going to have to risk the stone men, who seem much more agitated and active this time around. Griff isn't messing around anymore. He'll damn well be obeyed when he tells young Griff, or whoever he is, to get below. But there's no time. It's too late. The river is raging again. The stone men are wailing, and the fog seems at its absolute thickest. Yes, all this build-up is now paying off. And then, the stone men come down. George has that payoff. Two land, one on the cabin that Tyrion previously slept on, and one at the tiller. Duck immediately proves why we like him so much, as he steps to protect Yzilla and knocks one of the stone men into the water with his oar. Griff deals with the other until he, Halden, Duck and Yandri all combine to force him into the water. So huzzah, victory, long live the shy maid, we've done it. Except we forgot that George almost never does things in pairs, he likes freeze. And so do the stone men apparently. There's one more, and he stood right behind Tyrion. But it's not Tyrion the broken creature wants, it's young Griff. The point of this expedition, as Tyrion explained, and someone we would be really, really pissed about if he died so early, just after we get so interested. So are we to take this as some kind of hint as well? The stone man apparently wants young Griff, he's going for him, so is that just random? He just happened to land by him? Or is this some mission sent by the Shrouded Lord or whoever controls him? Clueless, we're absolutely clueless. For right here and now, remember an age ago on the high road when Catelyn Stark and her party were being attacked by the mountain clans. When Catelyn was in danger, Tyrion didn't even bother to think, he just acted possibly saving her life. It's five books later, and yet that core goodness in Tyrion lives on. Young Griff means nothing to him. He supposedly hates the world, and yet no one remembered to tell his soul. For the first time since the Black War, really, Tyrion has to actively, physically fight for his life. Let me describe it to you. Tyrion kicked the lad's leg out from under him and leapt over him when he fell, thrusting his torch into the stone man's face to send him stumbling backwards on his shattered leg, flailing at the flames of stiff grey hands. The dwarf waddled after him, slashing with the torch, jabbing it at the stone man's eyes. A little farther. Back. One more step. Another. They were at the edge of the deck when the creature rushed him, grabbed the torch, and ripped it from his hands. Bugger me, thought Tyrion. It's brave. Incredibly brave. He's just saved a life. But possibly, it's costly as well. Tyrion might have just given his life for young Griff, and when we consider what we've just discovered as first-timers, or even what we know as re-readers, can you imagine the unknowable amount of fates Tyrion has just changed by keeping this guy alive? These are the arcs of the entire world we're dealing with here. So we're left with one of the most important characters we've ever met, a bleeding, wailing stone man, and just Tyrion between them, now unarmed and helpless. Someone is shouting about protecting the prince. We can assume that's Griff, but Tyrion doesn't focus on that. He doesn't think at all. Once again, he just acts. When the stone man moves, so does Tyrion. Tyrion drove a shoulder into him. It felt like slamming into a castle wall, but this castle stood upon a shattered leg. The stone man went over backwards, grabbing hold of Tyrion as he fell. They hit the river with a towering splash, and Mother Roin swallowed up the two of them. Tyrion claims he hates the world, hates its people, hates everything. He's not supposed to care anymore. And again, he's surrounded by people that mean nothing to him technically. He owes them nothing, he's known them for like 10 minutes. Yet when it comes down to the basicness of protecting a child, he does so. Tyrion's soul is not quite dead, but his body might be. As he plunges into the cold river, we don't only have drowning to think about, but also these stone hands grabbing him here, there and everywhere. We've just spent a whole chapter explaining the excruciating dangers of such, so will he now be diseased when he emerges? Or will he even emerge? The creatures drag him down, and Tyrion reflects on what is apparently his last moments. If truth be told, he had perished long ago, back in King's Landing. It was only his revenant who remained, 
the small vengeful ghost who throttled Shay and put her crossbow bolt through the great Lord Tyrant's bowels. No man would mourn the thing that he'd become. I'll haunt the Seven Kingdoms, he thought, sinking deeper. They would not love me living, so let them dread me dead. That's a very emotional line. It's also a great sounding line. Well done, George. They would not love me living, so let them dread me dead. Yeah, I'm going to say that again. He's basically saying he died when he first heard about Taisha, when he learned about Shay in the, in the trial. It was a ghost who avenged his former life of her and Tywin, and ever since he's been nothing at all. A thing that no one cares for, the monster they all thought he was, except emptier. He has become a horrible person at times, it's true, yet I think you have to feel sorry for him with this mindset he describes here. After everything we've seen him been through, after all these abuses, it's just not nice to hear about. And he's also ignoring the fact that he just sacrificed himself to save somebody else. Somebody who might have a major effect on the world, who might even bring the vengeance he wants against his own family. But ignoring that caveat, that larger idea, he did a good deed. He saved a life, but gives himself no credit for it. It's incredibly telling of his overall mindset, but he just needs to give himself a little bit more love. There is something worth saving in him. He's not completely gone yet, he's just proven that to us. So the chapter ends with one of the more major cliffhangers of the series for so central a character. I'm not sure how many first-timers would even fall for this, I think we all expected Tyrion to survive in some way, but a chapter full of tension and creepiness full-on delivers with this mysterious end. How will he be saved? Will he then be diseased? Will this change his outlook? Will he have some new appreciation for life? No, unfortunately he won't. And what does everything about young Griff mean for the future and for Daenerys? And how the hell did they get back to that damn bridge anyway? Some answers we'll begin to get, others we really won't. But I think you'll agree with me, that is a very, very important chapter. A different one for Tyrion, a real enigma in his arc, but incredibly important, not just for him, but for the entire world. We really have learned something critical here. We'll look back one day and think, that's where it started, yeah. And for rereaders, we know the change that this sparks. Again, that young Griff is alive, that's obviously quite important, but also what it means for John Collington when he saves Tyrion, the disease that comes out with him, that might have a really, really widespread effect on Westeros, that all started here as well. The fact that Tyrion is saved, the effect he's going to go on and have on the world, as well as his also having to check about Grayscale, and the effects of such a chapter, such a creepy, weird, horrible little chapter, cannot be understated. It really is a big one today. But we have one more to go, and look, yes, it's our favourite, let's get to him now. This is Davos Free. So if we're leaving Tyrion to deal with the mystical and occult this week, then we can form a nice little political sandwich for him by revisiting the ever-growing subject of the Northern War as Davos keeps up his incredibly frequent streak and gives us a whole heap of information about how the two sides of this conflict are forming. It really does seem like we are zooming along Davos's arc. It seems to be going faster than any other arc I can remember in a single book, and I don't want it to be over so soon. We've been lucky enough to have him for three straight weeks, which is great, because we love the guy, and although we will have two weeks without him now, we only have one final chapter, and then he's gone forever, so we have to appreciate what we can. It still really stands out to me just how flash in the pan he and Bran are. We've just been hopping from place to place with Davos, as we reach this famous chapter of the Merman's Court, where it will seem all of our worst worries about the Onion Knight are confirmed. Davos 2 was about hearing how thin the chance is, and then taking the leap anyway. The keeping of faith, and Davos's trademark undying loyalty. In most stories, when something like that happens, it means that success is coming, but George has no interest in most stories. All through Davos's arc, we've been asking if George is really going to make us watch the death and downfall of Davos Seaworth, and according to Davos 3 here today, the answer is yes. Here, George springs his great trap, and our collective hearts leap into our mouths. To accompany that feeling, we have the appearance of Freys for the first time in this book, a family who will feature more than you might have guessed just reading the blurb, and the reread will notice the setup of many future favourite storylines. 
But in the here and now, perhaps the atmosphere is not so different from Tyrion's previously. We are going to get annoyed at Wyman Mandley's supposed betrayal, the lies about Rob Stark and the Red Wedding, and the general abandonment of House Stark in general, all aside from one very impressive young woman. The Mandleys are a truly interesting house. I was lucky enough to go really in-depth on everything about them on a podcast I penned for History of Westeros way, way back in the day, and this is our best ever look at them collectively in the series. We've spent a lot of time with Willis and Wendell, but nothing compares to this particular look in them and their spectacular moment of court. What a shame it ties into this feeling of impending doom. So let's head in then to see Davos in his usual spot of a pretty sticky situation, some Oscar-worthy acting, and the setup of one of the book's most prominent storylines in The Battle for the North. Let's have a quote to get us started. His lordship will hear you now, smuggler. George plays a trick early in this one. To take the first few lines at their word, it seems almost to be a direct follow-on from Davos too. That chapter ended with Davos walking up to the door and demanding to see Wyman Mandley. This one opened to him, being taken to see Wyman Mandley, so thumbs up, that's good. Davos has succeeded, even if he is being called a smuggler, instead of sir or something more respectable. He's even been escorted by a knight, a Mandley, no less. This is going very well considering his track record. Alas, the illusion only lasts for four paragraphs before something much more familiar is presented. Davos had come to White Harbour as an envoy, but they had made him a captive. Ah, okay, that's not so good. Yes, he's a prisoner treated with respect according to his station, but he's still a prisoner. He has nice rooms and views, but he can't leave them. Let's think of Sansa or Arianne and their similar situations. Yes, this is the Davos we know and love. Spending time in an essential dungeon, apparently down on his luck and needing a plan to get out of it. In fact, his being marched along by guards is pretty identical to the opening of his first chapter in this book. Some things just never change. We learn that this has gone on for a full 18 days now, as well as getting a nice note that the captain of the Cobblecat, Casso Mogat, waited for an extra day before leaving. Oh, what a nice guy. I hope we see him again. Now, as you know, I will admit, I spent a fair amount of time studying the castles of Westeros, and almost all the notable ones put considerable efforts into their aesthetic and shape and their grand designs. A lot of them take pride in particular chambers, like Castle Rock's Golden Gallery, or maybe particular towers or keeps. Think of the elegance of the Eyrie Seven Towers, or the strength of Storm's End's Drum Tower. But I must say, out of all the castles we come across, I'm not sure any family puts as much effort into interior decorating as the Mandalays. Every castle has banners everywhere, maybe some tapestries. Some of the families touch on specific items, like the trout-carved pillars of the Lord's Bed and River Run, but none of them match how covered the walls of this castle here are. Davos gives the first hint as he's marched along just a random corridor, already covered with banners, shields, swords, or more interestingly, the wooden figures once fixed to the prow of ships. That's pretty damn cool, we're not even in the main room yet. Luckily, we don't have to wait as Davos is escorted into and announced within the Merman's Court. If we thought that corridor was cool, then what about this? And I am going to read it to you at length. Its walls and floor and ceiling were made of wooden planks notched cunningly together and decorated with all the creatures of the sea. As they approached the dais, Davos trod on painted crabs and clams and starfish, half hidden amongst twisting black fronds of seaweed and the bones of drowned sailors. On the walls to either side, pale sharks prowled painted blue-green depths, whilst eels and octopods slivered amongst rocks and sunken ships. Shoals of herring and great codfish swam between the tall arch windows. Higher up, near where the old fishing nets drooped down from the rafters, the surface of the sea had been depicted. To his right, a war galley stroked serene against the rising sun. To his left, a battered old cog raced before a storm, her sails in rags. Behind the dais, a kraken and a grey leviathan were locked in battle beneath the painted waves. Wow, that might be the longest quote we've ever done, and there's good reason, because that is incredible it's jaw-dropping this might be the best looking room we've ever been inside in westeros and if we want to talk about zelda looking rooms or ones that are at least memorable well the mandalese decorator certainly hit their brief didn't they that sounds cool i want to be in that room unfortunately this room this court in fact 
has people in it as well. Yeah, they're not as fun. And lots of them. But it's a nice little note that most of these people are either women, old men, or young men. Few things show the aftermath of war so clearly. Although I suspect this might be a ploy of Wyman Manzanese to project a certain image to the phrase in Bolton's so that he can later commit a smaller number to their cause than he might actually command. Maybe allowing them to come and join in later, perhaps via those white knife boats that we know about. There's Septons and Holy Sisters too, another small detail to remind us of the Seven's presence here. But we're already past them because here come the phrase. And even though we're now two books removed from the Red Wedding, we readers do not forget. No, no. The casualties they suffered in Feast are not enough to appease us. We hate them. They betrayed Rob Stark. They ended his war. And now they dare to step foot in his lands. Well, we shall see about this. Davos had learned to read men's faces long before Maester Pylos had taught him to read words on paper. These phrases would gladly see me dead, he realised at a glance. And they hate Davos on top of everything? Right, that is quite enough. We will deal with them. So far in this chapter, excluding the cool design, it's not been great news. Davos has been imprisoned, and there's plenty of phrase already within the court. Well, things look even worse when Davos looks upon Wyman Manderley for the first time and does not find a hint of warmth, let alone friendship. That, on top of his apparent deteriorating physical condition, is not going to fill us with confidence. Gods be good, thought Davos, when he saw Lord Wyman's face. This man looks half a corpse. Is that more projections for the phrase? Is he putting on this front so he's not suspected as a danger? Possibly, but this one's probably a lot closer to the truth. Around Wyman is his assembled family, as well as a golden-haired maester. One we'll discover later is a Lannister of Lannisport by birth and not to be trusted. That's something sort of new to deal with. While Feast showed us some inner workings of the Citadel and how their secrets and self-interests most definitely exist, we've never really had to deal with a maester betraying their sworn lord before. So that whole idea of maester plotting is present in our minds once again. But what of the family that we'll slowly meet as we move through this chapter? We've already met Sir Marlon, the cousin, a tall knight, and though it's unbeknownst to us yet, we have Wyman's daughter-in-law, Leona Woolfield, wife to the still-captured Willis, as well as her two daughters, Wyman's granddaughters, Winifred and Wyler. You thought there were a lot of tie sounds in House Lannister when they have nothing on the Mandleys. And just to remind you, Winifred is the elder daughter, whereas Wyler is the younger with the really cool green braid, and we'll make their acquaintance soon enough. Instead of being introduced to them, we have this show of importance and standoffishness again by the maester, announcing Wyman Mansley's many, many titles. Again, it's likely a show for the phrase in reminding them of his power and prestige, whilst also appearing cold to their enemy in front of him. And I want to look at two of these titles. Firstly, the last, the Order of the Green Hand. I'm sure most of you are aware, but in case you're not, this order is a holdover from the Mandalay's previous life as a House of the Reach. They were very prominent before they fell, and were obviously accepted into this group of the kingdom's most prestigious. The order no longer exists, it went out of the gardeners on the Field of Fire, and even if it did, I'm not sure the Mandalays would be welcome anyway, but they keep it in their Lord's title as another way of honouring their past. These are a proud people indeed. The second title to look at is the fourth, Defender of the Dispossessed. To be dispossessed, in one sense of the word, is to be deprived of lands that you own. Well, who's a character that has been deprived of his lands? Rickon Stark. So this might be a title that Wyman takes really seriously, and we can see why it means a lot to the Mandalays, given that they were once dispossessed and then rescued by the Starks. The intention is obviously to intimidate and belittle Davos, who does not take the bait. He will not kneel because of the reflection it would have on Stannis, and he bites back with his own string of titles, as well he should. This is where Leona Woolfield gets involved, and unfortunately, she'll play quite the adversary to Davos in this chapter, although it's certainly understandable why, given that her husband and the father of her children is a prisoner of the enemy still. She takes her turn at belittling, and at least hits on a bit of truth this time. Wyman also enters the arena by again denouncing Davos as a mere smuggler, as the chapter opened with. The implication is pretty clear. This is a common criminal, someone beneath us, someone we do not like. To answer this accusation of crimes, 
Davos falls on his tried and tested method of showing off his missing fingers as way of penance, but that is not enough for Leona. It's not a great start overall, and it gets worse when Davos is denied an audience with Wyman alone. Even in that situation, his chances would be razor thin, but now that we've got all these others around, eh, oh dear. And it doesn't help when Wyman particularly points out the phrase are friends and definitely not enemies. Scoff, 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 says both Davos and the reader. Hang about now. The Freys are basically enemies to everyone who isn't a Frey, and then half of those who are a Frey as well. But definitely you, Wyman Mantley. And Davos takes a bold, bold step into dodgy ground by reminding him that Wendell, his beloved son, was killed by them at the Red Wedding, where they had sworn in friendship and protection. It's time to let the Frey lies out, of course it is. And we're no stranger to Frey lies in general, are we? In fact, we're very familiar with them. And we've even heard some specific ones about the Red Wedding. But I don't think we've ever heard any so egregious as what is claimed right here, that Rob Stark changed into a beast and killed Jingle Bell. So I guess Catelyn is off scot-free, so how are they justifying her supposed death? That never really gets brought up. Before taking out Wendell as well. And note the Freys are happy enough to paint Wendell as a hero just to make Wyman happy, when in reality we know that Wendell never even got the chance to be a hero like the small John say, because he was one of the first to go down. The enormity of the lie made Davos gasp. Is it your claim that Rob Stark killed Wendell Mandley? And apparently it wasn't just Rob. All the Northmen, but apparently not Wendell I guess, had this mystical ability to change into wolves, and it was only the phrase heroic gallantry that stopped such evil, as if the Red Wedding actually resembled a scene from the Companions questline of Skyrim, where they fight the Silver Hand. The man was smirking as he told the tale. Davos wanted to peel his lips off with a knife. That's a pretty vicious thought from Davos, but yeah, don't we all? The punkish attitude of these bastards. Oh, they need a smack, they really do. And then again, we think that about a lot of Freys, so we should probably be specific now and highlight the actual ones we're dealing with here in this chapter. Of the three presented here, Rhaegar probably takes the centre in terms of relating to the rest of the book, given that he is Aenys Frey's son. Aenys we know well from the War of the Five Kings, and he'll be one of the main two to shack up with Roose alongside Hostine later in the book. Rhaegar has been widowed by this time, so that's going to allow to his betrothal to Winifred here, as we'll find out later, an idea that horrifies us and really should horrify Wyman. Again, we'll find out later that it does. Also later on, Wyman will curse this man, this worm, for daring to have a dragon's name. And we must admit, it's pretty good chapter sequencing to introduce him here, given that true Rhaegar was just brought up a chapter ago with Tyrion. Simon Frey, who I don't think even actually talks in this chapter, we know next to nothing about in truth. He is an actual son of Lord Walder Frey though, but he's not done anything of note before this and neither of his close kin, and he's the seventh son, so who cares. But it is the quiet ones we must watch as we find out later that Simon has been included to run this contingent's espionage program as he tries to sow spies in Wyman's court through bribery or seduction. I don't think it's a massive leap to say that Simon might be the smartest of this trio. Finally, we have Jared, the one who's speaking here and speaks the most through the chapter. The smirking, arrogant ass, telling lies about the Red Wedding and Rob Stark. Jared has actually been around a whole bunch, and it's prominent in his own right, he's the fourth son of Lord World of Frey. We saw him right back at the Hand of the Tourney, we saw him again when Rob came to the Twins for the first time, when I was at Harrenhal, etc, etc. As for children, like he says here, his son Titus was one of the few Frey casualties at the Red Wedding, which I suppose makes him a good choice for this kind of mission, it can be a bit sympathetic. Jared will continue to be the main attraction of this chapter, but truly, they're all scum. Where is Nymeria's wolf pack when you need them? Davos earns himself another point on the best character ever list when he declares, Jared of House Frey, I name you liar. Good, Davos, good. Someone needed to say it. All that earns him though is a threat of fighting to determine the truth, but Wyman still commands enough respect to be listened to, though it does raise the tension for us in terms of concern for Davos. Leona is worried about the optics of even listening to Davos, 
and what that'll mean for those who hold her husband captive, but Wyman assures her the Iron Throne still think of them as friends. Uh-oh, that's tension rising. Definitely not good news. Any sort of alliance with Stannis definitely isn't going to keep them friends. So Davos moves to his next plan, highlighting Tommen as a usurper and Stannis as the lawful king. It's that old chestnut, the one we've been hearing for quite some time now, and probably isn't anything new to anyone's ears. It's the maester, Fearmore, who first bites back, and readers have the benefit of noting how kindly Wyman speaks of him, even when we know the truth from Davos 4. So the plan has backfired. This approach has only labelled Davos a further liar and introduced the threat of blood or beheading. Given our information from Feast, that's a word we really do not want to see. But still, Davos will not bulk. Instead, he just keeps churning out the great lines. Take his head, rather, suggested Sir Jared. Or let him meet me on the field of honour. What would a Frey know of honour? Davos threw back. Buy this guy a pint, everybody. He's more than deserving. As good as his singers are, Davos realises he's lost on this point. The only evidence he ever had was sent away across the narrow sea by his own hand. Everything else is a case of he said, she said. Once Davos clicks who Leona is and why she speaks so passionately against him, he begins revisiting some of the doubts from his previous chapter. Even ignoring all the politics and the threat of war, this comes down to a father protecting his child and Davos can't see a way past that, especially when he imagines having to protect his own sons. Remember, both Davos and Wyman have already lost at least one child, so he knows what pain Wyman is trying to protect himself against. The only pitch he might have is honour. He knows what loyalty to the Starks means in the North and knows what it means to the Manzies specifically, so he reminds them that Rob Stark might have fallen, thanks, Jared and co, but the spirit of his war remains. The obvious return to that is, but you aren't asking us to fight for Rob, you're asking us to fight for Stannis, a southerner who had no connection to Rob or his war. So Davos tries to spin it as Stannis taking up Rob's responsibility of protecting the kingdom. We know the Rob part of it doesn't really figure into Stannis' motivation, but the protecting the kingdom part is true. Besides, it blends well with Stannis having already defeated the wildlings, and unbeknownst to Davos, actually combines with the decision that Stannis made earlier on to take on the Ironborn at Deepwood Mott. So great minds think alike here for Davos and Jon. Unfortunately, geography is going to work against him, as Davos happens to be in the one area of the north not affected by either wildlings or Ironborn. I wonder if they'll have a similar attitude once the others come. Either way, this mindset is fairly short-sighted. The Ironborn have had a major effect on the North and have pulled White Harbour into it, even if they never forgot as far as their actual lands. A wise lord like Wyman knows that, but his court seems to have forgotten. This meeting goes from bad to worse when Leona throws Melisandre in his face, so we can see why George was clever to include those reminders of a worship of the Seven in the beginning of the chapter. Now Davos is in the dodgy position of having to argue for something that he himself is against, and he tries to toe the line best he can, pointing out that only some of Stannis' supporters have gone over to the Red God, but not everyone, and not him personally. But it is a pretty weak argument. We've already seen Stannis' insistence on conversion, and Davos is really hoping that no one brings up what happened down in Dragonstone or Storm's End, because he wouldn't even be able to lie about it. It's really not a confidence-inspiring pitch. We'll have to chalk this section up as a loss. Here is where Wyman speaks up, listing all the requirements that Tywin and Roose have asked from him in return for a pardon and for his son. Money, lands, and though he presents the marriage alliances with the phrase as gifts, rather than punishments, we know the true score on that. In return, there is peace, his son, of course, the ability to keep the land he had before the war even started, and these theoretically good links with the phrase. And the argument again comes down to, ignore everything else, what is it you can offer up in comparison? Place your bid, Sir Davos. Well, Davos knows he is damn weak on this point too, yet comes up with what might be the perfect answer in this part of the world. War and woe and the screams of burning men, Davos might have said. The chance to do your duty, he replied instead. That was the answer Stannis would have given Wyman Manderly, and the hand should speak with the king's voice. This suggesting Gunn is no reaction from Wyman here in Davos 3, but these words likely did a great deal to contribute to what is coming in Davos 4, so they are worth something. Maybe we can count that one as a victory, even if it's a subtle one. But then Marlon Manderly is allowed to ask some straightforward questions with straightforward answers, and none of them paint Stannis as someone who it would be a good idea to get behind. 
And unfortunately, this is all true. Marlon is right. It's true, Davos doesn't know about the new plan of recruiting the Hill Clans or the offer for Moor's Umber, but even those are still hypothetical. Perhaps this would have been a good time to really focus on the thrashing of Mount's Raider's army, but how effective would that have actually been this far south? Instead of trying that, Davos cruelly turns the blame inward. Davos felt a stab of despair. His grace should have sent another man, a lord or a knight or a maester, someone who could speak for him without tripping on his own tongue. The only avenue left to him is the one he's always relied on, and it seems to have gotten him this far. So he hits on the joint losses of their sons. He hits on the origin of all this pain and misery, the theft of the throne by the Lannisters. He hits on the fact Stannis cannot offer good chances, good numbers, or happy times, but he can offer you what is right. Death, he heard himself say. There will be death, aye. Your lordship lost a son at the Red Wedding. I lost four upon the Blackwater. And why? Because the Lannisters stole the throne. Go to King's Landing and look on Tommen with your own eyes if you doubt me. A blind man could see it. What does Stannis offer you? Vengeance. Vengeance for my sons and yours, for your husbands and your fathers and your brothers. Vengeance for your murdered lord, your murdered king, your butchered princes. Vengeance! We often talk about why Mandalay speech in Davos 4, but I say this one is just as good, this little bit here. And later we'll find that some of Davos's pleas have actually been working on certain people, even if we don't know it here. To read this chapter straight up, it seems everything has fallen on deaf ears, until now. This is where Davos gets through. He finally finds a friend, and it turns out to be the youngest man that he present, the green-haired Wyler. They killed Lord Eddard and Lady Catelyn and King Rob, she said. He was our king. He was brave and good, and the phrase murdered him. So if you want to talk fan favourites, look no further. Wyler leaps straight into our hearts by not only reminding us that Eddard and Catelyn Stark also fell because of these lying enemies, but by declaring she'll never marry a Frey, by defying her sister and grandfather both, and by insisting that the Freys killed their king, supposedly the greatest of all crimes. Not only that, but this is a young girl standing up in front of a room of people telling her to be quiet, reminding them of the promise, the vow spoken in this very place a thousand years ago, where the Starks saved the dispossessed Mandalays, gave them a home and friendship and purpose as well. And the Mandalays promised never to forget that. No matter what might come or how the world might change, they would never forget. As Wyler says, in return we swore that we should always be their men. Stark men! Even better than that, when Maester Fearmore points out you cannot hold oaths to dead people, she bites back with, yeah, dead because they killed them all, we failed to protect them, so let's damn avenge them. Yes, we all love Wyler. In fairness, we'll later learn that other Mandalays only aren't speaking up because they know how to play their part, but we still have to love Wyler's energy, enthusiasm, honour and commitment. And we know she's actually making her grandfather quite proud. Still, Wyman allows a rebuttal, and this time it's Rhaegar Frey who takes the podium. And he actually takes a gentle stance of almost admiration here, rather than biting back against what she's saying. We also get the note that this poor girl is going to be betrothed to the thuggish little world of Frey. Ugh, no thank you. But the larger point is no. Don't worry, you can still serve the Sarks. You can keep your promise because Ned's youngest daughter will be wedding Ramsay so everyone can be happy. Wyler's not having that. You can keep your little Walder and you can keep your Ramsay too. He won't ever be my lord. He made Lady Hornwood marry him, then shut her in a dungeon and made her eat her fingers. This finally has an effect. People finally start grumbling and agreeing with Wyler, perhaps even sympathising with Davos. This is what Roos will talk about later on. These people can put up with Freys, Lannisters, even Roos himself, but Ramsay's particular brand of evil is so cruel and malicious that it really sticks with people, really gets under their skin. They all remember Donald Hornwood's fate. They've all heard the rumours about these hunts that he goes on. Ramsay is just something else, something no one can actually get on board with. It's another reason why he's actually quite stupid, and this is a great way to get it across. He's not a leader or a ruler, he's just a rabid dog and nothing more, and people won't stand for it. But leave it to a fray to speak for Ramsay, as Rhaegar does here. He turns the table, saying everything that everyone's ever heard about Ramsay is just stuff made up by his enemies, and then ironically gives a great example of that by going on a rant about Rob, about how selfish and prideful he was, how he was a liar and a betrayer, 
how he abandoned everyone and got the death he deserved. I'm not sure if Rhaegar realises he might have just gone a bit too far. The young wolf, he was a vile dog and died like one. The merman's court had grown still. Davos could feel the chill in the air. Lord Wyman's looking down at Rhaegar as if he were a roach in need of a hard heel. This is a superb little paragraph, especially for our reread purposes. Even the first time you read it, you get this sense of overstepping the mark, of speaking too harshly against their king, as Wyler has just reminded them all. But then there's this little hint of Wyman Manderley's true feelings. We can almost hear him chewing his tongue, making himself resist having this man killed then and there for these crimes. And remember that the phrase, deep down, know that Wyman likely despises them and hates them, but they rely on the game to keep them safe. They believe he's backed into a corner where he can't be open with them. The cogs in Wyman's minds are working. He knows if he gives into temptation now, it's all been for nothing. Willis is doomed and many more besides. He will not win that way, but still, it's damn tempting. They maintain his composure, somehow, and allows what must be a very painful nod in agreement. Wyler gives one last stamp of defiance and is then whisked from the hall, leaving Davos apparently friendless. When her sister apologises for her, Rhaegar again plays with fire. Marriage will soften her, I have no doubt. A firm hand and a quiet word. We know little Walder, heck we know the phrase in general, so we know just how firm that hand would be. And the inner anger of Wyman is surely raging, but he manages to keep himself together. He even suggests the Silent Sisters again, because he'd probably genuinely prefer that for her, and likely wants to keep it as a back pocket plan if this all goes wrong. No phrase can marry her if she's been packed off to the Silent Sisters, and I'm sure he would really have just sent her somewhere for safety. Anyway, it's time for a decision. I think the chapter has been pretty clear on which way it's going to go, despite Wyler's best efforts. Wyler reminds us of these many losses during this meeting, before dealing this blow. You are still a smuggler, sir. Come to steal my gold and blood. You would take my son's head. I think I shall take yours instead. Guards, seize this man. Davos has time enough only to remind him that he's an envoy. He's earned the honour of protection. But his manner of entering White Harbour that we praised so much last time out has come to work against him. Cousin, take this creature to the wolf's den and cut off his head and hands. I want them brought to me before I sup. I shall not be able to eat a bite until I see the smuggler's head upon a spike with an onion shoved between his lying teeth. Oh, feast flashbacks, feast flashbacks everywhere. This is our worst nightmare as first-time readers. I'm sure more than a few books were thrown across the room. We've got back-to-back -back cliffhangers for the character deaths now, and yet this one is infinitely more effective. No one really believes Tyrion is going to die five chapters into this massive book, but Davos, well, even without feast, you can never be too sure about Davos, but we have had feast. We've literally been told that this is going to happen, but we've spent three chapters convincing ourselves no way, George would never do that. He's going to pull some trick, or we'll find Cersei's been lied to, or something like that. But at this point in the book, it generally seems no. George has actually done the unthinkable, and made us watch Davos go to his doom. As cliffhangers go, it's not only effective, but just damn genius in the way that George has combined it with our own expectations, with the information he himself has given us. How he's playing us off our own minds, and letting us jump to conclusions we thought we were going to avoid. It's truly brilliant, and I'd say this entire Davos arc, but this chapter especially, is one of the very best components of all the Song of Ice and Fire in terms of rereading. Going back to Davos 3 after having seen Davos 4, and learning the truth of this fake-out, the acting skills of Wyrm Manderley, and the sheer passion that he manages to keep contained in this chapter, frames it even better than before. It's honestly a masterclass, and it makes the Davos 3 and 4 combo absolutely devastating in terms of effectiveness. George is truly winding back his fist here. He's built up hope by providing us with a Davos POV in the first place, by providing hard circumstances that Davos has powered through by being brave and loyal, obviously leading us to think that it'll work again, and has now pulled the rug from under our feet by setting up the death we thought was coming anyway. The loss of one of our all-time favourite characters, and it's going to make one of the most famous chapters of the series, never mind just the book, all that more brilliant when we see the switch come around. We see how the spirit of Wyler Manderley is shared and multiplied, how hated the phrase truly are, 
promise is still very much alive, as well as the resurgence against the hated Lannisters, Boltons and Freys, which is very much still on. The North remembers, and we remember how brilliant this chapter is, how Davos truly has got through this with bravery and loyalty, and it's going to set him up for perhaps an even more important task than he's ever had before in terms of saving an innocent and restoring truth and justice. You know we are looking forward to that one. Unfortunately, it's going to be a little bit of a wait. We actually don't have Davos next week or the week after, I don't think. So yeah, that frequency and it's unfortunately going to take a bit of a dive, but it's worth the wait. I think you'll agree. So what about next week then? Because that is the end of this episode. We've done our four chapters. This is about the quarter way mark of Dance with Dragons, which is odd to say because we've had so much content already, but there's lots more to come, don't you worry. But what is up next? Well, let me give you a quick preview. We'll begin, unfortunately, with Reek 2 slash Fion 2. Yeah, we're back in that dark atmosphere. That's a nasty one to start an episode with. That is the Moat Kaelin chapter. So not nice atmosphere all around. Our second chapter, like today, will be a John. That's John 5. We're now Stannis this Castle Black and we're headed down to Molestown. That is yet again, followed by a Tyrion 6. And I don't mean to uh, give away any spoilers, but he's alive. And this is where he makes possibly his biggest influence on this entire book i'm going to go ahead and say that's our most important chapter of next week it really really is a big one and we'll finish with daenerys 4 where danny makes an agreement with his darzo the rack oh dear but also daru naharis return so you know she's pretty happy about that so that is next week everybody i hope you will join us then as well thank you for joining us today like i said at the beginning do not hesitate to contact or chat or whatever you might need the other faces is here to serve as always thank you thank you a million times thank you and we will see you next time